Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Fidel Castro Ruse, 1926-2016. Viva Fidel. Fidel Castro, father of the 1959 Cuban Revolution, has died after 90 years of a life of rebellion and resistance. That this bold revolutionary figure lived as long as he did is itself a victory, for he outlived at least 11 assassination attempts forged by the CIA against him, 11 times that the U.S. government has admitted. As a young man, he earned a law degree, but never practiced in that role. He took to the revolutionary path and began a struggle against the U.S.-supported Cuban dictator, Fulgencia Batista. That struggle, which led to the fall of Batista, inspired people all around the world. One of those inspired was the late Huey P. Newton, co-founder of the Black Panther Party, who, in a 1967 jail interview, noted, When Fidel Castro started the revolution, along with Che Guevara, with 12 of them all together, they realized that they wouldn't be able to topple the uh, oppressive regime in Cuba. What they were essentially was an educational body. They engaged with the army, they fought with the army, and uh, they showed the people that the army was not bulletproof, that the police were not bulletproof, and that Batista's regime was not a regime that was impossible to topple. So the people began to feel their strength. Dr. Huey P. Newton. Fidel was a friend of Malcolm X and a lifelong friend of Africa. The racist regime of apartheid South Africa got whipped in Angola with tens of thousands of Cuban troops in the field. The notorious Battle of Quito Carnival, Angola, was where South Africa saw the bloody writing on the wall. Castro once said, African blood flows in our veins. Many of our ancestors came as slaves from Africa to this land. As slaves, they struggled quite a great deal. They fought as members of the liberating army of Cuba. We're brothers and sisters of the people of Africa, and we are ready to fight in their behalf. Fidel Castro and the Cuban Revolution never bowed to the U.S. Empire, not once in over half a century. The Cuban Revolution produced the finest educational system in the Caribbean and much of the world. They've sent their doctors all around the earth. 
the world mourns the passing of a giant. Fidel Castro Ruz, Comandante de la Revolución, Presente, from Imprisoned Nation. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. Smith thought it was time to lose a few pounds, so he took up running. He didn't really consider his race when he made that decision, but he realized it was an issue when he was jogging down the street and a woman walking toward him dropped her groceries and fled in terror. It turns out that deeply held racial stereotypes have a big impact on the way African Americans choose to exercise. Rendell Smith wanted to change some of that. He created a new exercise group called Black Man Running. It's based in Wilmington, and it looks to shift how people view black men in public spaces. The group combines political conversations with exercise, and my guest today is Rendell Smith. He's the co-founder of Black Man Running and joins me from sister station WHQR in Wilmington. Rendell, welcome. Thanks. Good to talk with you. Also with you in Wilmington is the group's running coach, Martha Foy. Hello, Martha. Hello. Thank you for having us. Rendell, talk a little bit about Black Man Running. First of all, what what is it all about? What do you do? Okay, so Black Man Running is a public art project, and it brings people together around racial justice uh, while using running as a point of departure and an organizing tool. So we're essentially hacking the 5K run model to bring attention to and create art around racial profiling. Um, So the way that starts out is, you know, since the dynamics of racial profiling play out in public space, um, we started out asking people, you know, uh, if they planned out a run uh, in their community, like where would they go? Where wouldn't they go? Uh, Would they take a friend? Would they take mace? And that was a way into acknowledging Um, sort of the personal restrictions that we sometimes face when moving through public space, uh, the privileges and affordances, uh, the invisible demarcations that we encounter in our communities, uh, the power diagrams that we map by moving around it. Um, So, you know, we uh, talked to first folks about this external mapping, um, this sort of self-mapping as a way of exhuming all this and as a way of sharing stories about, you know, what it's like to go on a run. And it's interesting Um, to see how you first came to this. I outlined a story uh, in my introduction, but maybe you can give us the details. And I think this is about the first time that something like this actually came to your consciousness, was it? Sure, yeah. I mean, I was definitely cognizant of the fact that there were certain racial politics out there. Um, But, you know, I was 17. uh, I was in Philadelphia. Um, I was on my way to college. Um, I was thinking about dropping a few pounds um, and decided that the best way to do that was to go out jogging, to, to go on a run. Um, you know, and I'd seen this, so, this sort of archetypical 
running images over and over um, on television and sort of knew how to dress the part. So, you know, got uh, the wristbands and and threw a towel around my neck and, you know, got the uh, right jogging pants and, you know, assumed that this kind of costume would allow me a safe passage through my neighborhood and the neighborhoods around me. Um, so, you know, probably about six blocks out, I would say, um, I started getting different reactions um, in a predominantly white neighborhood. Um, and that ultimately culminated in, you know, one woman uh, just absolutely panicking at the sight of me running towards her and dropping her groceries and running in the other direction. Now, she only ran a few feet and <laughs> kind of figured out what was going on and came back to her groceries and, uh, you know, went about her routine. But it had certainly sort of taught me a lesson about how I would be perceived running as opposed to, you know, folks of various other backgrounds. Well, it taught you a lesson or reinforced a lesson because it sounds like you had already taken on, I mean, this, this, this level of signaling that you felt you had to do. Look, I'm a jogger. See? Sweatband. Jogging clothes. In other words, you can't just put on some rags at the end of your, at the end of your bed and just go running. You had to think very deeply about what you were going to look like to prove that this is me running and jogging and not doing something else. Right. And I think that that is something that, um, you know, almost all African-Americans and in particularly African-American males are taught to do. Um, you know, very early on in the conversation that we began having about the, uh, uh, the value of black lives, um, people began talking about the talk that black parents give to their mm -hmm. black children. Um, and this talk involves uh, making them understand that when they are moving around in public space in this country, they are perceived differently, that they encounter different and various dangers um, as a result of being African-American. Um, and so, you know, this uh, sort of running um, and the encounters that you might have doing it as an African-American uh, is reflective of, you know, a tradition of oppression and uh, subjugation that we have yet to deal with as a country and a culture. Martha Foy, you're the running coach with this group. You heard uh, Rendell talking about art and politics involved in running, but there's also running involved. And, I, and as a running coach, I wonder sir, what got you involved in this group in the first place? My interest in getting involved was based on its purpose. Um, the way that it was presented to me was that our visibility was also going to be served as a protest, uh, that we are coming under the umbrella of promoting physical health for our community while simultaneously also thinking about our social and community health. And that was the main reason that I wanted to get involved. You also, I mean, the, the idea of this navigating public spaces, I understand that you had uh, a number of encounters, including uh, family members who sort of, as a matter of fact, talked about their their being stopped simply because they were African American, and this is something that you internalized. Maybe you had examples of that in your own in your own past. Well, there's um, a couple of things that I saw like are very similar. Um, a lot of us, uh, a lot of um, African male 
African-American male and females, when we are younger, um, we do have a totally different conversation with our family about how we are supposed to behave when we are in, um, in public environments. And what we realize is that none of that has mattered for us. I mean, we're, we're even if we're consciously aware of how we are dressed, how we are speaking to people, how we are, our mannerisms, and um, we're conscious, but it hasn't resulted in any change in um, how we're perceived. And you are right. I mean, I have I have stories of my own. I I, I remember when I was younger. Um, this was this is one time I was happy that I was a track runner. I mean, I wasn't actually running. I was actually walking home from a homecoming dance. Uh, I was dressed in tights and shoes and a dress that had, like, lace. And I uh, was talking with a friend of mine, and we started to get harassed by a um, skinhead group. And I remember having to run through, like, the woods to my house because I didn't know I didn't know what, what, what would happen, and I don't even think I gave them an opportunity to actually get close enough to me to say anything to me. I just realized that I was there is a danger there, and so I just ran. I ran for, um, I guess, about a half a mile just to get to my home, and then I ran all the way up the stairs and locked my door. I mean, I was that, that, uh, that alarmed. I'm talking with Martha Foy and Rendell Smith today on The State of Things. Talking about being African-American, running in public spaces. And, Martha, of course, there is a public, there's a health aspect to this. I mean, the idea that you said you, you were glad you were a track star. Uh, these inhibitions, these challenges and barriers to what, what you know, are uh, not so difficult for, for white runners uh, have health implications. Is that something you think about as a running coach and the, uh, the health implications of running and exercise? Absolutely. Without us being physically healthy, we're distracted from being able to do anything within our communities. Um, if you don't, if we don't believe that we should take the time an hour or two hours out of our day to to look at ourselves and um, how much effort we're putting into um, eating well, um, engaging in physical activity, then it's very unlikely that we're going to be available for um, any discussion about um, what are the problems that are, are, are prevalent in our community. We're not ready to live in a world where everything has to come out perfectly on the first take. There's a reason houses have doors on them and windows have shades. And if I want to sit in the privacy of my living room and say, I think the Little Mermaid is hot and I want a banger, or I don't like watching two men kiss, or I think tattoos look terrible on black people. Tattoos have long ceased to be the mark of a rebel. Nearly half of all millennials have a tattoo, according to a 2016 Harris poll. And even though tattoos have become more common, many with darker skin struggle to find tattoo artists who know how to work on their skin types. As NPR's Parth Shah reports, different skin tones call for a different tattooing technique. Getting a tattoo can be nerve-wracking, but Oshuna Afrique is no newbie. This is my 35th tattoo. Afrique lounges on the sofa at Pins and Needles Tattoo Shop in Washington, D.C. While she sips her morning coffee, shop owner Christopher Mensa is busy sketching out Afrique's 35th tattoo. Afrique has dark brown skin. For the tattoo to show up on her, Mensa says the design needs to be big and bold. Let's say if somebody came in and got, and they wanted to get a, a tattoo of a heart with, you know, an initial in it the size of a dime. 
something that's a dime size that you may do on on white skin, you may have to do a quarter or half a dollar size on dark skin. Mensa says he's heard a lot of myths about working on dark skin. Some clients think there's a special kind of ink for dark skin. There isn't. And it's not just customers with misconceptions. He says it's other artists, too. The times I was working in white tattoo shops, what I would hear a lot was dark skin is, is more difficult to tattoo. Um, however, from my experience, I just think it's softer. What do you mean by that? When I say it's softer, we tend to keloid more and scar. A keloid is a raised scar, and people with African ancestry are much more likely to get keloids in response to a tattoo. My keloids are, are very small, though, compared to some other people I've seen. Afrique says when she's searching for a tattoo artist, she studies their portfolio and pays attention to who they've tattooed. If you see only light-skinned people or, or white skin, I, I don't want to, because I don't know how they're going to work with my skin. So I'm a little darker. Tattooing dark skin opposed to light skin or any difference of skin type is a different world. That's Tyler Brewer. He works at Kensington Tattoo in Maryland. Brewer is white and says artists should learn how to tattoo all skin types. But he says he's met people who feel otherwise. I have seen artists pretty much give the blow off to clients because they were different, different being a different color. I think people rationalize their racism in tattooing and their lack of ability. Back at Pins and Needles, artist Christopher Mensa is eagle-eyed and focused on Oshun Afrique's left forearm. Mensa says the lack of information available for dark-skinned people seeking tattoos is linked to the lack of people of color working in the business. He says there wasn't a community for him when he started tattooing 20 years ago. At the time, there weren't many, well, I didn't see any black tattoo artists. Afrique says the community is growing. Most of her tattoos have been done by people of color. After sitting for an hour in the hot seat with Mensa, tattoo number 35 is finished. It's a Sankofa bird, an Adinkra symbol that translates to go back and get it. I'm so excited to show it off. I'm not putting my jacket on. I'm going to go, I'm going to walk around the city with a tank top in November. (laughs) Not so fast, though. Before she leaves the shop, Mensa bandages her forearm so it doesn't get infected. She'll have to wait a few hours before she can show off her new tattoo. Parth Shah, NPR News. When we interviewed him on Friday afternoon, Mr. Trump said he had not heard about some of the acts of violence that are popping up in his name or against his supporters. Nor, he said, had he heard about reports of racial slurs and personal threats against African Americans, Latinos, and gays by some of his supporters. I'm very surprised to hear that. I would. I, I hate to hear that. I mean, I hate but to you hear do it. hear it. I don't hear it. I, you do, you're I, I not saw, seeing I saw one or on, two instances. On, on social media? But I think media? it's a very small amount. Again, I think it's do the Do you want to say anything to those I, people? I would say don't do it. That's terrible. Because I'm going to bring this country together. They're harassing Latinos, Muslims. I am so saddened to hear that. And I say stop it if it, if it helps. I I will say this, and I'll say it right to the camera, stop it. Interfaith leaders in Seattle are calling for an FBI investigation of a possible hate crime at the University of Washington. A Muslim student was allegedly attacked a week after the presidential election. Nazro Hassan was born and raised in Fargo, North Dakota. She's now a freshman who studies computer programming at the UW. Hassan told KUW's David Hyde that she had just walked out of Mary Gates Hall on campus when she was struck in the head with a bottle. 
know. I had a black eye and a really, really bad concussion. Like, this whole side of my face was purple. What did you think the motivation was for the attack? I was just shocked. I was like, was it because of I was wearing hijab? Is it because of the color of my skin? Like, he didn't give me a reason or he didn't say anything. So I was just baffled and confused, really. And this is just one week after the presidential election where we know there have been a number of hate-related incidents. There were protests going on about the Donald Trump election going on all around our campus, all around Seattle, everywhere I go, like, for, like, the past couple of days before then, there was, like, a lot of stuff going on on campus. So... What conversations have you had with friends and family about this afterwards? Um, everyone just mostly asked me, like, how am I, how am I doing? And I'm just like, I'm fine. Yeah, and trying to remind them that, you know, it's not because of who we are, because we're good people. And I don't know what else to say to them. Your family must be really worried about it. Mm-hmm. What have they said to you? They say, don't go out at night and don't walk alone without someone else there. Have you had to take precautions now? Yeah. Got to make sure that I, like, have someone to walk with to the train station and, like, when I get my car at Tukwila and make sure I always call them when I leave class and things. Who's been affected by this? Mostly my mom. Yeah, she's, like, worries for everyone else now, like, all my cousins, all my relatives, because, you know, the your mother is always going to be the one that worries the most out of everyone. And this mother is all across the country who are worrying about their kids right now. What's your mom been saying? She's just making sure that I'm safe, calling me right before class, right after, you know, always making sure that I'm all right. And what do you say to her? I tell her, Mom, I love you, but I'm fine. Do you feel fine? Yes. What do you think needs to happen in society, in Seattle, in the country, for people to feel safe? I feel like more precautions should be taken up by, like, our political leaders, our congressmen, our future president that you know we should be spreading diversity and acceptance for everyone for muslims for everything have you had other things that have happened to you in the course of your life that made you think that they were hate motivated um you know kids at school used to be rude because of the hijab i wore they would like pull it off and like make fun of me or call me bald because they couldn't see my hair but you know, it's just something you learn to ignore, but you wish you wouldn't have this problem, but you just have to remind yourself that it's, 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 it's okay. What's your message to people out there who are hearing about your story? What's your message to them? Stuff like this shouldn't happen to people, even because of being a Muslim or anything. Like, we're your neighbors, we're citizens, we're just like everyone else, and no one, not just Muslims, no one deserves this. That's Nazro Hassan speaking with KUOW's David Hyde. Hassan says she was struck with a bottle on the UW campus the evening of November 15th, a week after the election. A group of interfaith leaders in Seattle will hold a press conference about the incident later today. They're calling for an FBI investigation of the incident as a possible hate crime, and they say that they'll offer a $5,000 reward for information that leads to an arrest and conviction of the case. So how's the college responding to this incident? We're having a, um, a race forum. And what's that? A forum on race so we can discuss the incident and the surrounding issues. 
of race. So the usual lip service. Uh, no comment. Boats were sent to a local high school student. This happening at a charter school in Oregon City. Our Chris Holmstrom looking into it. He spoke with the teenager and is going beyond the headlines live from our newsroom. What'd you find out, Chris? Yeah, Jeff and Jennifer Joy Simmons is a student at the Clackamas Academy of Industrial Sciences. She has dreams of becoming an aerospace engineer, but in the last week she's been absent from school. This after she says she was the victim of a hate crime. The first one had the N word on it, and the second one said, Go back to Africa N word. Go back to Africa? Derogatory notes no one should ever get, but it happened to freshman Joy Simmons. She says she was at school when someone put the notes in her binder. It was really pretty devastating because I didn't know that anybody thought that of me, that I shouldn't be there when. I have just as much as a right to be there as they do. Joy immediately went to the principal. From there, her and her mother went to a local civil rights group, hoping to shed light on this hate crime. You're hearing a lot more hate crimes than you were a couple months ago. And she's right. In fact, just last month, someone tweeted a picture of Oregon City High School students with a sign that said, Welcome back to the farm, N word, and a cartoon of a KKK member. Then there was this note left on the doorstep of another black student. Two separate incidents that infuriated other students, enough to get them to walk out of class and protest the hate a month ago. I don't think a lot of kids even understand what it means to people. And I think the school should have more education of um, history. Which is exactly why Joy wants to share her story. She wants to take this derogatory note and turn it into a learning lesson for everyone. I'd rather have them be educated on the word than to be punished, because I think an education on it would go way farther than just a punishment getting expelled from school or getting suspended or something like that. And I also reached out to the Oregon City School District. They would not comment on this incident, but say they do not tolerate harassment of any kind and that this report will be investigated. As for Joy, she plans on going back to school sometime this week. Jeff and Jennifer, back okay. to you in the studio. All right. But Malcolm went to school, the public school. We call it the killing field. Seven-year-old Trayvon Grayson is bruised, swollen, cut, and missing several teeth. Injuries that his parents say happened when an assistant teacher at the second grader school assaulted him. My son told me, baby, he threw my son into the wall. My son had dreams about it all last night, this morning, still shaking in his sleep, jumping in his sleep and everything, like saying that he keep having visions of the, the teacher throwing him into the wall. Trayvon goes to City Springs Elementary in East Baltimore. According to his mom and dad, the assistant teacher was escorting the second grader to the main office for an alleged disciplinary reason at the end of the school day Monday. But he never made it to the office. His mom says that when she got to the school, Trayvon was in an ambulance crying, and the teacher was there as well, she says, with Trayvon's blood on his clothes. The teacher told me put him over his shoulder, and, and he when he put him down, he was bleeding. That's it. Like, how can you tell somebody that? He said he made a mistake. He said, I made a mistake. It was a mistake. That's what he said. Trayvon's parents have filed a police report. A spokesperson for Baltimore City Schools issued a statement saying that the school system is cooperating with a police investigation and that the staff member involved is an employee of a charter operator for the school called Baltimore Curriculum Project. The statement reads, yesterday at City Springs Elementary Middle School, a student was injured while being taken to the school office. 
Our thoughts are with the child and his family as he recovers. Trayvon's parents say he needs surgery for injuries to his mouth. Should he go to school and you'll think he's safe and you go and find out that your son is all hurt and things like that. And he, it's just really pretty bad. To fracture his face, push his teeth back, make his teeth fall out. A seven-year-old cannot do all of that to himself. And so Baltimore City Police child abuse detectives are handling the investigation. City school officials did not give an official status for the staff member. Trayvon's parents believe that there is video from inside the school. Reporting live downtown tonight, Kyrie, WBAL, TV 11 News. Rich people have always stayed on top by dividing white people from colored people. But white people got more in common with colored people than they do with rich people. We just got to eliminate them. Eliminate. Eliminate. Who, rich people? White people. Damn. Black people too. Brown people, yellow people. Get rid of them all. Oh, yeah. is a voluntary, free-spirited, open-ended program of procreative racial deconstruction. Everybody just got to keep fucking everybody till they're all the same color. A Michigan business owner has deactivated all of the social media accounts pertaining to his business after he sent very angry and racist comments to a black employee who happens to work with his girlfriend. So this all started when um, the man in question, uh, the business owner from Holland, Michigan, his name is Chris Bosgraf. Uh, went through his girlfriend's phone and found some flirty text messages between her and a coworker of hers. Okay, now the coworker happens to be black. And so I want to show you a screenshot of the text that he sent to uh, uh, Dominique LeBron, who's the uh, coworker. And it looks pretty bad. It looks pretty bad. It was uh, done on Instagram. And the name of the business is Water Cooled Independent. Okay. So moving on, let me go ahead and tell you uh, what the relevant parts of his comments were. He said, heard you'd talk to her if I wasn't in the picture. Fucking N-word. Uh, I'm going to put you in the dirt. Say goodbye to Obama and all the people who helped your low life. No more free handouts. If you want a job, let me know. I got mad cotton out back that has to be picked. Mm. So again, um, the messages were sent from the Instagram Water Cooled, well known uh, in the Water Cooled Volkswagen community for its cast and forged custom rims, typically <laughs> priced between $1,200 and about $4,000. Hmm. Anyway, so yeah, he's mad. He's like, oh my God, my girlfriend's flirting with a black coworker, so let me go after him with racist comments on Instagram. Okay, so if you can't see that effing. Uh, N-word is uh, problematic when he tells him in two separate occasions, I read the whole thing, uh, to go pick cotton for him. Mm, if you can't see that that's racist, then you're probably racist. Yep. <laughs> I mean, you got to really close your eyes not to see that one. Uh, but So that's the dark part of it. And, and so this guy, he keeps saying how he's you know, going to put him in the dirt and uh, I'm going to fuck you up and I'm yep. going to kill you and all this stuff, right? So uh, that's the obvious implication of putting him in the dirt. Fine. Uh, so if you're uh, Dominic LeBron in this case, uh, obviously you're going to get uh, freaked out by that, although he seemed relatively calm. He did. Let me read you his quote. He says, about in August, Brittany, that's the girlfriend, told me Chris read our text and wasn't happy about it. Nothing went on, but at the same time, we were kind of flirty, but nothing came from it, so I understood why he was upset. He's just so calm. He's like the calmest man in America. Yeah. Maybe that's why she uh, is into him. Um, <laughs> So, but now let's get to the funny part, which is how jealous this guy is. 
and how insecure he is. Uh, in another part, he says, like you could actually fuck my girl, <laughs> LOL. I love a guy doing like wildly racist things, threatening to kill you, writing LOL. <laughs> and, like he's a 14-year-old. In fact, he wrote LOLOL. Uh, he says, I think she'd commit suicide over that. No, she seemed to be rather enjoying it. <laughs> I mean, the flirty texts were not just from him, and they were not unsolicited. Right. They were flirty back and forth, back and forth. That's why you're so upset, because you're worried that she's going to sleep with him. Of course. And going to find him far more attractive or pleasing yeah. than you. So, And he keeps talking here about how richer, how much richer he is than Dominic, right? And he says, your car costs less than one out of four tailpipes in my beater car. And so I guess his sense of self-worth is, yes, I might not be as attractive as you, I might not be as charming as you, uh, but I have four tailpipes in my beater car. (laughs) Well, Um. good on you, okay? I think you're going to have to beat off in those beater cars because you're not going to have a girlfriend soon if you're this insecure, whether it's Dominic or someone else. And now the racial component to it. See, that's what's in their heads, man. History rains down on us through the generations. Yeah. So you go all the way back to birth of a generation, uh, I'm sorry, birth of a nation, and and it's an original blockbuster movie from like 1910s, right? Mm -hmm. And and they have a guy in blackface, a white guy in blackface, who goes and and kidnaps white women and is going to rape them. I'm glad that you brought that up because... While this might just sound like, you know, an isolated incident, there's like a historical component to this that I think is relevant. And that's what you're mentioning right now. Yeah. And so people have been brainwashed in this country to fear black men. Like, Mm -hmm. they're going to come and steal your women. They're going to steal your women. Mm -hmm. I think that the original reaction to it, the reason that it happened in the first place was because there was so much rape of African-American women by white slave owners that they assumed, well, they will probably do the same thing to our women, that what we did to them, right? Because right. that's our perspective. Now, I'm not putting that on white people today. Don't get me wrong, okay? But that's, I'm telling you where it came from. So back in the day, when slavery is over, they're like, oh, no, remember what we did to their women? They're going to do the same thing to ours, right? Oh, my God, watch out for your women. Yeah. And so and then they uh, put it into movies, and it becomes part of a propaganda that goes to the whole country. So it, becomes, it becomes one of the stereotypes, Black guys are going to go get your girlfriend. Now, I think that there's also a little internal fear that, like, and, and, and this is so silly on the part of people who have this subconscious thought and sometimes conscious thought, like, they're insecure, like, they somehow have internalized it, and they think black guys might be better, right? Mm-hmm. And so they get really scared. Like, they're like, oh, no, oh, no, what if, you know, what's this saying? Like, if you go black, you can't come back. Yeah. <laughs> I think they believe it, right? But it's like this racist guy who believes it. He's like, no, what do you do? Don't go to the black guy. Don't, I'll never get you back. <laughs> LOL, she would never go for you. <laughs> Sounds like she was going for her. She was at least halfway home. <laughs> Here's what I think is going to happen in terms of combating racism in the country. Um, I don't think it's going to happen through people like us, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're libtards. No one cares what we have to say, right? Uh, no, but he, that's the thing. Like, I could sit down and have numerous conversations with racist people, and they don't care, right? I totally disagree with you. No, no, no. Okay, but let me finish my thought before you, okay. you know, disagree. Um, I think what's going to save race relations in the country is biracial relationships, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And, and look, sooner or later, whether white people like it or not, 
we're going to have people who are mixed race, and, and that, that population of people is only going to increase, right? And I think it's a wonderful thing. I think it's great, right? Because it'll show you that we're all extremely similar, and all the stupid things that we use uh, to divide us is completely irrelevant, right? That's, that's crap that I think politicians use as a way to keep us distracted from what the real issues are. And so, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that white people and black people do knock boots. Knock boots. Thanks, Nufio at 6, a CU Denver professor under fire tonight after posting a racially charged message on Facebook. Denver 7's Molly Hendrickson joins us. And Molly, that professor insisting tonight that she is not racist. Yeah, we'll let you decide. Now, here's a look at that post. It's a picture of Michelle Obama followed up by a comment saying, monkey face and poor Ebonic English. There, I feel better and I'm still not racist. Michelle Heron says she was responding to another post saying it's unfair people make comments about Melania Trump, but saying anything about Michelle Obama is considered racist. Heron declined to go on camera, but over the phone she told me this was taken way out of context. 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 context and she didn't know using the term monkey-faced was considered racist, which she insists she is not. It's the Facebook post Joanne Nieto calls entirely unacceptable. This woman calling Michelle Obama a monkey face, referring to her poor Ebonic English, then clarifying, I'm not racist. Hiding behind the excuse that you're not racist doesn't negate the fact that you are being racist. What's worse, Nieto discovered that woman is Michelle Heron, a pediatric anesthesiologist who works at Denver Health Medical Center, Children's Hospital Colorado, and is an assistant professor at CU School of Medicine. I think you have to help hold yourself to a higher standard as being a public employee, as well as being a professor in such a critical field. That comment has since been removed, and Heron has taken down her Facebook page. It stayed on there until for four days, until you know I had said something to the you know CU Board of Regents, and I sent an email to them. Otherwise, than that, if I would have never mentioned anything, how much longer would have that comment? Been out there in the public world. We reached out to both Children's Hospital and Denver Health, both shocked over the comments and telling us tonight they'll look into it. For Nieto, it's too little, too late. Honestly, I think she should be relieved of her duties as both a teacher and as a practitioner. Now, within the last hour, Denville Health responding in part saying, we don't condone nor do we agree with the statements Dr. Heron made as they are inconsistent with Denver Health's mission and values. However, we cannot control the opinions our staff choose to express as private individuals. By the way, Heron has worked there for nine years and makes more than $363,000 a year. College don't mean shit. Y'all niggas, and you going to be niggas forever, just like us. A heated encounter between a woman and a tow truck driver igniting a firestorm on social media. Jefferson County resident Stacy Fontenot claims the driver made racist remarks while on her property to repossess a car. She claims he was at the wrong address. The owner of the tow company tells us those accusations are false. 12 News reporter Ezzy Castro joins us with more on this heated conflict. Ezzy. Well, Erica, Fontenot is still upset over what happened outside her home Friday afternoon. She claims the repo worker crossed the, li I'm sorry, crossed the line and went too far. He called me the N-word, um, lots of the B-words. Um, just really wasn't very nice. 52-year-old Stacy Fontenot will never forget this Thanksgiving weekend. 
when she got a surprise visit from someone she never thought would be on her property, a repossession employee. When he asked me about the names and said what he said and asked about the car, I was honest with him. I said no, I didn't have a bad attitude because I figured he was at the wrong house. Fontenot says the man came looking for a white Nissan Sentra. She claimed he had the wrong address and that's when things got heated. I've never had anyone to come here and, you know, threaten to shoot me on my property. Uh, I've never had anyone come here and curse me out. In the state of Texas, a repo man can come onto your property at any time. But if there is a breach of the peace caused by the repo man, the creditor could be liable. Fontenot says the company has apologized for the incident over the phone. But she says that's not enough. For one thing, I, I don't want him to be able to call people out of their race. I want him to know that's not appropriate. I spoke to the owner of 24-Hour Recovery this evening. She tells me the accusations made by Front, uh, Fontenot are false and could not go into further details about the incident due to privacy laws. The company has also retained a lawyer at this time. In the studio, Ezzy Castro, 12 News. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. It doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Damn you, Obama. I want to speak up. No, sir. No, yeah, yes, sir. I want to speak up to the joke. 18-year-old Travis Thompson wouldn't take no for an answer during his first appearance in court, speaking out against his attorney's advice. I know I mess up. Everybody mess up. In my first defense, I still want to be there with my family that, that need me. And I took a job at WastePro, and now I'm probably going to lose it. Lose it after this Facebook video landed in the hands of cops and is now being used as evidence. Witness Gene Jenner started rolling after he saw Thompson in the passenger side of the silver truck. Driving a, a truck with a large Confederate flag and Trump bumper sticker on it. Driving erratically, waving between traffic lanes, speeding, slowing down. And I saw him charging with a wrench in his hand toward the, uh, the, the vehicle. Uh, the door, the, the passenger door of the vehicle opened up, a uh, black gentleman came out, looked at me. I couldn't believe what I was saying. And number two, it's, it's sad. It's not acceptable, and I'm glad we were able to follow it up further and make an arrest. He was uh, screaming and making a lot of uh, racial uh, comments towards them, and uh, that's why we were able to enhance the charges to a felony level. I'm glad, and I hope that it will serve as a lesson to order that this is America. We will not tolerate that. Thompson's grandmother told the judge that her grandson needs help. Well, Travis has had several problems, and right now he's off his medication. He's bipolar. He's ADHD. Just not the place for me. I need a place. I need to be with my family. I need to get my medicine. Okay. The court has determined the appropriate bond is $20,000. Take all prescribed meds and don't take any drugs that are not legally prescribed to you. And Thompson's grandmother told the judge that he acts out when he's not on his medication. Meanwhile, the police chief says there's another video out there on Facebook similar to this one. However, the victims have not yet come forward. Levin Volusia County, Valerie Boy, Fox 35 News.
It's more shootings than I can literally count. You can't even go to the goddamn zoo without seeing a shooting nowadays. They shot a gorilla in my local zoo. And the Cincinnati police said shooting that gorilla was the toughest decision this department ever had to make. I said, well, you about to see a lot of niggas in gorilla costumes in Cincinnati. CMPD officer Brentley Vinson will not be charged in the shooting death of Keith Scott. Mecklenburg District Attorney Andrew Murray announced that decision at a press conference this morning. After a thorough review and given the totality of the circumstances and credible evidence in this case, it is my opinion that Officer Vinson acted lawfully when he shot Mr. Scott. He acted lawfully. But before that, before he said that, rather, Murray laid out details of the case for nearly 40 minutes, building to that conclusion. Shortly after, attorneys for the family of Keith Scott responded with their own press conference. Lawyer Justin Bamberg expressed understanding for the DA's conclusion. But that does not mean that this officer's killing of Keith Scott was right. All that means is that uh, under the view of the DA's office, it wasn't criminal. And those are two completely different things. WFAE's David Borax and Lisa Worf were bo- at both of those press, conference- press conferences today. They've read the DA's report, and they're joining me now. We learned a lot of things about this case today. Let's begin with what the district attorney said about the gun, David. Well, Mark, uh, the district attorney talked about a lot of things that we already know. For example, that officers approached Scott when they saw him with both marijuana and the gun. Uh, Murray also acknowledged that we can't see the gun in any of the videos, but he said all of the credible credible and available evidence suggests that he was, in fact, armed. And he listed examples of that corroborating evidence. Every officer present reporting seeing Mr. Scott holding a gun. Officers can be heard on video repeatedly commanding Mr. Scott to drop the gun. The idea that Mr. Scott was unarmed does not explain why officers acted defensively, had their guns drawn, and ordered him to drop the gun. And Mark, he also addressed what he called erroneous claims that someone besides Officer Brentley Vinson shot Keith Scott. First, Officer Vinson took responsibility for the shooting from the outset. Every officer's gun was seized, and an ammunition was count, count was conducted by investigators. Each one had a full complement of ammunition, with the exception of Officer Vinson, who was four rounds short of a full complement. Murray also said that tests show that the ammunition was fired from Officer Vinson's weapon. And Murray also mentioned how Scott got that gun. It was stolen from a home in Gaston County and sold to him September 2nd. The seller of that gun came forward to police, and that person also sold Scott the ankle holster that was found on him. Murray says the two of them went to Gander Mountain to buy a magazine and ammunition for the weapon. He mentioned a receipt for that uh, that had numbers matching Scott's debit card on that. And Mark, you might remember that Rakia Scott, Scott's widow, said he hadn't had a gun this year. But Murray noted that text messages between her and her husband a month before the shooting showed that she knew he had a gun. Right, and we want to get to more of what the family said in just a moment. Uh, David, we also recall that there were other witness accounts that disputed CMPD's official version of what happened on September 20th. What did DA Andrew Murray say about those? Well, it really seemed like the district attorney wanted to help put some of the rumors to rest. 
It remains to be seen if that will happen, but he went through the case in great detail. For example, he, uh, you know, he said the investigation by the SBI debunked many rumors about the shooting, like whether Scott's arms were raised over his head when he was shot or that he was just reading a book. Um, three other witnesses claimed on social media or in newspaper interviews that Scott was unarmed, but Murray said the SBI later determined that they didn't actually see the shooting. And it was, I'll note here, it's interesting the detail that uh, District Attorney Andrew Murray went into in these cases. As we mentioned before, I mean, it was nearly 40 minutes of laying this out before he stated that conclusion. And in previous cases like that, like this, we haven't seen all this evidence laid out. And they also provided uh, links. Uh, that anyone can go to on their website that's heavily footnoted. For example, they have a 75-page account of uh, Officer Brentley Vincent's interview with uh, CMPD after that incident, uh, along with uh, tape that explains that moment where he said, where he f- knew he said he had to, to shoot. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think uh, Murray was very conscious of the protests that happened after this, and it seemed like he was really making an attempt to lay out the case in as much detail as possible to try and forestall any community reaction to it. And we don't know what's going to happen next, but, you know, there is a lot of information out there that the community really has been clamoring for. Well, let's get back to the family. Um, After the press conference today, shortly after, uh, Keith Scott's family members, along with their attorneys, uh, had their own press conference outside the attorney's uh, office in South Park, and here is one of those attorneys. This doesn't end our inquiry. Um, There are differing legal standards that apply to a decision about whether an officer should be criminally charged for the discharge of their weapon and the use of deadly force, and whether the department, the officer, or the city should be held civilly liable for negligence in the way this this entire situation was handled. That is Charles Monette, an attorney for uh, Keith Scott's family. And Lisa, what else did the family's lawyers say today? Well, and I should note, no family members actually spoke. They stood behind the three lawyers. And those lawyers said, based on what the DA says, it's clear there was a gun at the scene. Here's attorney Justin Bamberg. That's not the key question in terms of determining whether or not Keith Scott should have lost his life. It's whether or not that officer should have pulled the trigger and extinguished his life based on everything as a whole that occurred during those moments. And he said there's no definitive proof that Keith had a firearm in his hand, that that's based on witness testimony. Now, uh, Andrew Murray, the district attorney, pointed out the officers yelling, drop your gun. The lawyer said they would look at all this new information. And as we mentioned before, there's a there's a lot of it and consider whether to file civil charges. Um, The district attorney had said he was ruling specifically on whether there was an imminent threat and that shooting itself, not necessarily the training, the police procedures, all of that sort of around the incident. Uh, The family's attorneys say they have questions about that. Police training, de-escalation practice, why officers didn't respond differently once they heard he had a TBI, whether that even registered, um, which is a traumatic brain injury. Um, And in a state that has a lot of veterans, he said, uh, you know, 
why officers may not know about this and maybe approach someone differently if they have that knowledge going in. For example, maybe not five officers shouting at the same time when it can be difficult to process that information, but uh, going calmly to the scene. You know, there was so much information in this report, and as you mentioned, it is on the Charmec DA's website, and people can go look at this themselves. Um, but, you know, some of the things that we learned today that were new, that we haven't had before, included there was a video from a convenience store um, that Scott apparently visited uh, before he was shot, and uh, it shows a, a, an ankle holster on Scott's ankle. And that's important because it's another little piece of ev- evidence that, you know, helps add up to the conclusion that he did have a gun. Um, Murray showed that video, and he also showed the videos that we've seen before and said, look, here's the same ankle holster. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, there were also details from the interviews with the police officers. There's, you know, hundreds or dozens of pages of interviews and some um, video of those interviews as well, including Vincent. And and we really get a little more insight into what they were thinking at the time of the shooting. And um, and then there's some of the forensic ev- evidence. Um, you know, we did get some information from the autopsy previously one of the things we haven't seen yet is what Murray had in his hands when he was making a decision about this, and that is a detailed reconstruction of the shots fired. There's been some question on social media about whether more than one person fired or you know, why, sh- why there were shots that seemed to enter from the front and behind of Scott. And uh, Murray said that they ha- actually had a mannequin in which the uh, state medical examiner's office uh, you know, showed us where the shots entered and exited. And and they were able to show through that that all came from the same direction, according to the medical examiner. We're being hunted every day. It's a silent war against African-American people as a whole. The hunt is on. And you're the prey. Jefferson Parish Sheriff Newell Norman vows there will be no rush to judgment in the ongoing investigation into the shooting death of former NFL player Joe McKnight. Good evening, I'm Natalie Shepard. Karen and Tan are off tonight. Well, this afternoon, the sheriff held a news conference to update details of the shooting and to explain why the man who admits to shooting McKnight has not been charged with any crimes, at least for now. Paul Murphy joins us live in Terrytown with that story. Paul. Natalie, we are back at the corner of Holmes Boulevard and Berman Highway, where local sports hero Joe McKnight was gunned down in what was described as some sort of road rage incident yesterday afternoon. Now, mourners have been coming up to a growing roadside memorial here throughout the day. Jefferson Sheriff Newell Norman revealed the admitted shooter shot McKnight from inside his car. A road rage incident which may have started on the Crescent City Connection ended several miles away at Holmes Boulevard and Berman Highway in Terrytown. That's where investigators say 45-year-old Ronald Gasser of Gretna shot and killed 28-year-old Joe McKnight, the former NFL player and prep standout at John Curtis. It may have been simply cutting one off in front of one recklessly while driving on, on the bridge. Jefferson Parish Sheriff Newell Norman said that McKnight was out of his car positioned at Gasser's passenger window when Gasser shot McKnight three times from inside his vehicle. Mr. Gasser did not stand over Mr. McKnight and fire shots into him. The three casings were located within the vehicle. Jefferson Parish Coroner Dr. Jerry Satanovich said an autopsy performed on McKnight's body showed he was shot in the left hand 
right shoulder and chest. He revealed that bullets fatally damaged McKnight's liver and one of his lungs. The wounds are not consistent with being shot from above uh, while on the ground. Sheriff Norman also addressed community outcry over why Gasser was released overnight and not charged with any crimes. The sheriff said his office is not at a point in the investigation where accurate charging decisions can be made. People can Monday morning quarterback what we've done. Mr. Gasser is not going anywhere. He has been completely cooperative uh, with us. And the sheriff says he has about 30 to 40 deputies working on this case. He also admitted that Louisiana's stand your ground law looms on the horizon, but he stopped himself as to not make any comments that could take the testimony of any potential witnesses. We're live in Terrytown, Paul Murphy, Eyewitness News. The subject of intellectual disability and the death penalty was before the U.S. Supreme Court today. It's something the court has considered before. At issue in today's case, the standard used by courts in Texas, which executes more people than any other state. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. In 2002, the Supreme Court barred execution of the intellectually disabled, but it left the state some latitude in determining who is and is not, quote, mentally retarded, as the court put it at the time. Then, two years ago, the court put its thumb more firmly on the scale, telling states they were not free to use a rigid IQ test score alone to determine disability, but must look to the medical community's current diagnostic framework, a framework that specifies additional factors. Before the court today was the case of convicted murderer Bobby Moore, whose IQ tests averaged 70, who, as a 13-year-old, could not tell the days of the week, the months of the year, or the difference between addition and subtraction. A trial judge concluded he was intellectually disabled and exempt from the death penalty. But the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals said that based on what a consensus of Texas citizens would think, Moore was mildly disabled and thus not exempt from execution. At today's Supreme Court argument, a majority of the justices expressed some qualms about that standard. Justice Kagan said the Texas court was evaluating mental disability based on a, quote, stereotypical layperson's view instead of the clinician's view. Texas Solicitor General Scott Keller rejected that characterization, saying the Texas standard uses the totality of the circumstances. Kagan replied that the genesis of these factors used by the Texas court was that clinical standards are just too subjective and they don't reflect what Texas citizens think. Justice Kennedy observed that the effect would seem to limit the number of people classified as intellectually disabled for purposes of the death penalty. Keller conceded that the factors used by the Texas court do not capture all those who are mentally disabled. That's why he said the factors are discretionary. Justice Ginsburg, isn't that a huge problem? Then you're opening the door to inconsistent results depending on who is sitting on the trial court bench, something we try to prevent from happening in capital cases. Justice Breyer asked, why did the Texas court write these standards? 
Because, he said, they are trying to figure out what to do in borderline cases, trying to figure out the level at which Texas citizens would agree that a person should be exempted from the death penalty. But Breyer said the question is not what the citizens of Texas think about who should be executed. It is a technical matter as to what standards should be used to determine disability with the consequence that some will be exempt from execution and others will not. Moore's lawyer, Clifford Sloan, argued today that the Texas court, through a series of rulings, has set up a system under which only the most severely intellectually disabled are exempt from the death penalty. But he said this court ruled in 2002 that there is a bright-line exemption for the mentally disabled, not just the most severely disabled. Justice Kennedy, whose vote will likely be decisive in the case, noted, however, that the court in 2002 also left the states some discretion in defining intellectual disability. So he asked, how closely must the states stick to current medical practices? Sloan replied that one telling factor is how the state defines intellectual disability for other purposes, and in his words, Texas uses outdated medical standards only in the death penalty context. A decision in the case is expected by summer. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Ladies and gentlemen of the Senate, when we first heard on the television that a police officer had gunned down an unarmed African-American in North Charleston by the name of Walter Scott, there were some who said, wow, the national story has come home to South Carolina. But there were many who said, There is no way that a police officer would ever shoot somebody in the back six, seven, eight times. But like Thomas, when we were able to see the video and we were able to see the gunshots and when we saw him fall to the ground and when we saw the police officer come and handcuff him on the ground, without even trying to resuscitate him, without even seeing if he was really alive, without calling an ambulance, without calling for help, and to see him die face down in the ground as if he were gunned down like game. I believe we all were like Thomas and said, I believe. What if Mr. Santiago was not there to record what happened. I'm sure that many of us would still say, like Thomas, we don't believe. We don't believe. Tonight, jurors in the murder trial, former North Charleston police officer Michael Slager, say they are hopelessly deadlocked. A lone juror sending this note to the judge late today. I still cannot, without a reasonable doubt, convict the defendant. At the same time, my heart does not want to have to tell the Scott family that the man that killed their son, brother, and father is innocent. Despite the impasse, the jurors are telling the court they want to keep deliberating. Slager charged in the death of Walter Scott, who was shot in the back as he ran from a traffic stop last year. 223, just got shot, fire. Subject is down. 
He grabbed my taser. In emotional testimony, Slager had told the jury of 11 whites and one black man about the moments not recorded on video. After he pulled Scott over for a broken taillight, Scott suddenly bolted from his car. And after a foot chase, Slager said Scott grabbed his stun gun during a struggle. As Scott broke away, Slager said he was in total fear for his life. Fired until the threat was stopped, like I'm trying to do. Jurors have deliberated for three days, weighing whether Slager was not guilty altogether or guilty of murder or the lesser charge, manslaughter. One of the keys of this case is, is what's not on the camera. And there have been weeks and weeks of testimony about what, has, what is not on that camera. Within the last few minutes, the jury just came back and asked the judge to return on Monday morning and keep deliberating. No matter the outcome of this case, Michael Slager still faces federal civil rights charges. If convicted, he could spend life in prison. Lester. Gabe Gutierrez in Charleston. Thank you. An act that he imagined would incite fear and recrimination, violence and suspicion. An act that he presumed would deepen divisions that trace back to our nation's original sin. Oh, but God works in mysterious ways. Dylan Roof, who, uh, you know the story, Charlton, South Carolina, last year, 2015. Uh, he went to the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, there was a Bible study going on in the basement, and he was invited in. And about an hour later, uh, he whips out a gun and starts shooting up uh, the, the Bible study. Eight people died there. Ninth, ninth person died at the hospital. Uh, a tenth victim was shot and survived. And uh, according to witnesses, Roof reloaded his gun at least five times. And during the shooting, he said, I have to do it. You rape our women, and you're taking over our country, and you have to go. Lovely, huh? And he was arrested during a traffic stop the next morning, and a pistol was found in his car, and I think the pistol's been connected. He later confessed, saying that he hoped to start a race war, and that he almost abandoned the plan because the people in the church were so nice to him. So uh, the incident was investigated as a hate crime, domestic terrorism, and was indicted on hate crime charges as well as multiple counts of murder. So during the extradition hearing, a waived extradition, uh, some family members spoke directly to Roof and said they were praying for him and they forgave him. And uh, the judge uh, actually caused some controversy saying there were also victims on Roof's side. Oh, how dare you can say that. And he said, listen, his family has been on, been drawn into this. And they are part of the victimization, which, how do you argue with that? How can you disagree with that? Now, why is he being tried if he, was offer, if he offered to plead guilty? Because his attorney said, I'll tell you what, here's the deal. We'll plead guilty if you agree not to seek the death penalty and the prosecutor said, oh, no, 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 no. We're going for the death penalty here. You can try to plead out all you want. It's not going to happen. So uh, he's got a history of obsessive compulsive disorder as a kid. He's preoccupied with germs. I mean, he's really bizarre. Uh, dropped out of school and spent his time playing video games, taking drugs, getting drunk. Like uh, how many teenagers do you know about this? 
So what is going on with uh, the trial? Well, he's representing himself. He elected to represent himself. And that is a problem. The judge judge always admonish defendants who represent themselves, which they have a constitutional right to do ever since 1975 in a court decision. And uh, he wrote a manifesto uh, regarding George Zimmerman, which no doubt will be brought up in the trial. It's obvious that Zimmerman was in the right. And then he goes on and on, often telling friends that blacks were taking over the country. You wonder why this is a uh, why this is a hate crime. And what Roof did was buy the gun he used in the shooting, and it was a legal purchase with money he received for his birthday. It was birthday money. FBI Director James Comey said he was able to buy it because of problems in the criminal background check system because uh, he, in fact, bought it and should have been caught. So uh, day two of jury selection yesterday, uh, he uh, does have standby counsel, which is uh, virtually required. So the counsel sits there, and standby counsel includes a noted death penalty defense attorney, David Bruck. And Bruck had all kinds of problem adjusting to this, repeatedly admonished by the judge for intervening, making objections. And he can't do that when a defendant represents himself. The attorney can't jump in. And the judge said, you can't jump in. Brooks said he should be able to handle Roof's out-of-court communications. And the judge said, uh, no, Roof, Roof is representing himself. So uh, the most interesting part of the day uh, was when Dylan Roof actually spoke the most. A female juror, then this is voir dire, this is the selection of the jury pool. A female juror said that anyone who commits a horrific crime should get the death penalty. So then Roof enters into the conversation and turns to the judge and says, she said if you do a horrific thing to someone else, then the death penalty should be imposed. My question would be, if someone commits multiple intentional murders or murder because of a person's race, does that automatically make it horrific? So he's saying, is that necessarily horrific if you commit a bunch of murders? And the woman said, uh, well, she's going to keep an open mind until all the evidence is presented. And neither side objected to her being on the jury. So it looks like uh, we have her as a juror. Uh, The trial continues on this week. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, December 3rd. 2016 so i have been told this is our weekly compensatory call-in feel free to dial in if you have commentary observations questions uh things you would like to share the number is 641-715-3640 the code is 564-943-POUND press star six if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code is 
9-4-3 pound. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Couple quick things uh, before we get to folks who dialed in who have commentary. Uh, for starters, we finished Lothrop Stoddard's The Rising Tide of Color against White World Supremacy yesterday. So we have a new book that we will be starting next Friday. Uh, I'm opening listeners. Uh, you all can make a vote uh, for this one. Uh, some folks have already submitted uh, different titles that they would like to read uh, starting this Friday. Uh, the, dele- uh, the Delectable Negro uh, was one of the selections. I think the sex imperative. Uh, I said myself, uh, if I had my druthers, uh, we would be reading Gwen Eiffel, uh, the, breakthrough, uh, the Breakthrough. Some people did uh, select that book as well. Uh, she really, really important uh, professional and award-winning black journalist. She just passed away last month. She wrote a book about racism, the Obama presidency, uh, race in general, uh, and the history of the U.S. I think would be uh, would be good to read her text since she just passed, uh, so we know a little bit more about her life and times, her thoughts on racism. Folks don't want to read that. That's fine, too. But make sure you, uh, if you participate in the book club, live or archive, you actually do participate in that segment and you want to make a vote about what book we should start this Friday, you can drop an email until justice at gmail.com. Uh, I'm not reading the book. So if something happens where the book with the most votes uh, is a book that does not have uh, an audiobook or whatever the case, and people are not willing to volunteer to do it, uh, I'm not going to read it. So that means we won't be doing it this time. If, if a book wins that does not already have an audiobook available, uh, but we'll just make that the next one up. Uh, and if folks pick a book that already has an audiobook, then we'll be ready to ride for Friday. Uh, incidentally, Gwen Eiffel, The Breakthrough, already have the book, already have the audiobook. Uh, but yeah, feel free, whatever, whatever you would like to read. If you want to read something a little less dense, a novel, something maybe even uh, a bit more entertaining, uh, feel free. Lothrop started. I know that's more of a dense white supremacy propaganda piece that we just finished up. Thanks again to Dr. Welsing for the recommendation. Moving forward, uh, quick thoughts I wanted to make sure uh, touched on and then we'll get to folks who dialed in. Uh, Number one, uh, the Brazilian soccer team uh, died in a plane crash. I don't think all of the members, but uh, a number of members of the Brazilian soccer team uh, died in the plane crash. I think some of them were injured as well. That got a lot of attention uh, around the world. They just had the World Cup uh, recently as well. Um, the thing that I thought was interesting and Thomas in New York, uh, noted this, that there were a number of reports that said the Brazilian soccer team was wiped out. And that was the specific term that was used wiped out. And Thomas in New York, he said, I think that that is an act of racism. Certainly every player on the Brazilian football team was not a non-white person, but Brazil has the highest, uh, population of black people in this hemisphere, and their soccer team did have, uh, I w- notably, I mean, if you go online and look at some of the photos from the past week since the crash, that football team has significantly more non-white people than most of the other uh, dominant, well-known soccer teams from around the world. Like if you, I think Germany won the World Cup uh, from 2014. I don't think they have tons of dark-looking people 
uh, on their team. You can look at uh, the U.S. soccer team or wherever else in the world, Argentina, look at their teams and see how many dark people they have on it. Uh, but I totally agree. And I even see that as a, uh, a pattern. If you pay attention when black people die, uh, if it's a prominent black person, an athlete or an entertainer, or certainly if it's any you know black person who devoted time and energy to working uh, against racism, white supremacy, you can see the difference in value, the difference in regard for black life, even in death, where they will slip in something where they'll, uh, as opposed to, you know, catastrophic loss and can't believe we've lost our nat- national sporting team, it'll be wiped out. Uh, or the case with Ma- uh, Minister Malcolm X, it's, you know, he lived by the sword, he died by the sword, those types of things where you can just see that it's just not the same regard for black life in a system of white supremacy. I thought that was a great point. And I almost played an audio clip because it wasn't just a stateside thing. The BBC, they did a news clip and it was the same thing. They used the exact same term to describe uh, this loss of life. The Brazilian soccer team wiped out. Thought that was a great insight. Uh, Thomas in New York. Next, uh, we have listeners uh, in a variety of spots on the globe uh, who've written in, who said that they would like, uh, if there are listeners in their area who would like to have uh, contact, that they would be interesting. So if we have listeners in the Texas area, and we're looking specifically like Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, if you're in the SoCal area, if you're in the Tampa, Florida area, if you're in the London area and Leeds specifically, I should have asked when we had our global folks on a week or so ago, I will do that next time. But if you're in the London area, Leeds specifically and or Toronto and I guess any other places, these specific spots, these are spots within the last couple of days or so where people wrote in and specifically these areas, they said if they're cows listeners who would like to reach out, have contact with other victims uh, who are attempting to be counter racists for something constructive, get a coffee or whatever the case, drop me an email until justice at gmail.com. I will forward uh, the emails as best I can. And then you all can rendezvous and hopefully it'll be constructive. I think there were people in Virginia that were attempting to do this as well, just uh, to help Gus T. If you do this, when you drop me an email until justice at gmail.com, make sure that you put your specific geographic location in the subject. So if it's Tampa, Tampa contact, if it's London, London contact, etc. just do that. That makes it easier for me to kind of locate and pass emails and such along. So if there are people in these areas or if you're in another spot and you would like to uh, try to reach out, have contact email or a phone conversation, or maybe even in person, just drop me an email and I will do my part moving forward. Uh, there were a litany of incidents that took place uh, this week uh, that you heard the trial with Michael Slager down in South Carolina. The trial for Dylan roof uh, is coming up. Uh, the shooting that happened with Joe McKnight, a former NFL player who was shot and killed by a white man, not an enforcement official, just a regular white man uh, to, again, emphasize the danger that whites represent badge or no. Uh, but the incident where the young child, young black student uh, had his jaw broken by an educator. Those incidents and some of the other incidents specifically where it was black children being harmed it just it reminded me and even going all the way back to 
last week when we had the black female mother, black mom who called in, or she wrote in rather, about the situation that happened with the white uh, race soldier uh, terrorizing her at her residence where he kicked on the door and her children were at home. We caught a lot of flack. I specifically, not uh, from everyone, but there were a sizable number of people uh, over the justices counting down the days to being 18 and voting and being able to do her thing. But way, 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 way back when we started out and justice was on this program at 10, there were so many people, white and non-white, who complained and griped. How can you have a 10 year old or an 11 year old or a 12 year old on the program that is absurd. You're making a mockery and a joke. And you all talk about being serious. Nothing is serious about this at all. This is totally staged. And it's ridiculous to have, you know, some child participating in this serious conversation where we're talking about people being killed and harmed and violence. And, and she can't even understand what's happening. That was the gist of the type of complaint people had and that I'm, you know, making up questions for her and what have you. The whole point to having children on the program, Justice specifically, or any of the other younger folks that we've had on over the years, the whole point is that, number one, racist man, racist woman, racist child, they do not care. They mistreat any non-white person. I don't care if you're eight days old, 80 days old. It doesn't matter if you are a non-white person, you are about to be abused. That's just what it is. And non-white children need to understand that as well. You are not safe just because you are young, just because you're smaller, just because you're a child. That does not afford you any protection within the system of white supremacy. And I'm sorry to report that that is uh, born to be true every week. It's evidence to be true. You see that with the, the number of reports. And I'm not talking about things that get big attention like what happened with uh, Ayanna Stanley Jones or Tamir Rice. I'm not even talking about cases like that. I'm talking about the cases that you don't even really get that much of attention. Uh, you know, a child being called a nigger at school or them sticking nigger in my binder, uh, in my notebook or what have you, or all the other things that don't get nearly uh, that type of attention, if any at all. That's why she was on the program. And that's why I think it's so critically important that non-white parents and older people in general, if you have younger children that you care about, if they're relatives or friends or what have you, you care about them at all. Really, let's make sure that we're doing uh, the best that we can to share this information with young, non-white people, black children. They need it. It's life saving information. Uh, We are in dereliction of duty as attempted counter racists. uh, If we just continue to allow another generation of non-white children uh, to be poorly informed about racism white supremacy got to be a par- uh, one of our paramount duties in solving this problem hopefully uh the black mother who wrote in about the situation last week hopefully she'll uh be able to give us an update this week i know a lot of folks were concerned uh, about her situation uh one other thing uh, i'll touch on and then we'll go ahead and get to the phone lines the situation with dylan roof i know his uh trial is about to start uh, the federal trial, anyway, uh, death row case, that he's representing himself, you heard in the audio clips. They had an article in the Wall Street Journal because there was a whole process around this, and 
is he competent, as they say, to uh, even stand trial, much less be his own attorney? And so they had to go all, go through all these tests and have him evaluated. Not only did they find that he was competent to stand trial, the Wall Street Journal had an article. I published it uh, on my Facebook page. I put it in the Facebook group as well, where they said that the, they concluded, white people concluded it's not just that Dylan Storm Roof, uh, it's not just that he's competent. They found him to be highly intelligent and i thought that was significant because i have heard painfully i've heard victims of racism describe uh mr roof as just being some dumb white boy or he's just some you know ignorant racist and you know he deserves whatever he gets uh and a lot of times these people are not even sticking up for him it's just they are in my mind diminishing his deliberate racist intent by just chalking him up as being ignorant stupid which happens all the time in the system of white supremacy if nothing else i hope with this trial that that gets emphasized and that maybe we will resist and those of us who are a little bit less confused maybe we can actively push back and saying uh this guy's not ignorant they gave a battery of tests they didn't just say that he wasn't ignorant they said he was highly intelligent that to me sounds like this is someone who is a methodical race soldier who planned had a racist agenda and carried it out to execute eight black people including what could have been a political assassination against state senator uh reverend clementa pinckney who you heard in the audio clip as well talking about walter scott i will stop there folks have commentary they would like to share the number again is six four one seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate if you could take uh, about five minutes to share whatever thoughts you have observations comments questions if you could take about five i'll prompt about that uh, that way, everybody can get an opportunity to share at least once. And then whatever extra time we have left, if you have questions, comments, observations, uh, anything additional that you want to add, we will we should have time for that as well. But we'll start with the first few folks who dialed in. And again, if we could not use metaphors, I know many people are probably not accustomed to paying attention to the use of analogies or comparisons uh, again. This happens a lot in the system of white supremacy. I've concluded that whites deliberately will employ analogies, metaphors. They'll make comparisons between things that are not equivalent. And this just generates a lot of confusion. Uh, it does not aid in the understanding of racism, white supremacy. I've concluded that non-white people, a lot of times, we follow the lead of racists. We will use a lot of metaphors uh, and analogies. I don't think we're doing it deliberately to be confusing in most instances. I think a lot of us, myself included, a lot of times just in our confusion uh, and trying to articulate our stance on racism. A lot of times we just we end up employing metaphors, analogies to try to explain our views. And a lot of times it's just it's adding confusion because we're comparing things or we're juxtaposing uh, two specific items that are not equivalent it happens frequently we should really be mindful about it and even beyond all that just with the metaphors in general we should really pay close attention when they start to be used in conversations on racism i found that people really a lot of times can pick 
poor metaphors and accurate metaphors it is a major aspect of how the deception works so if we could just be direct explicit exact about what it is uh, that we are trying to say direct to the point no metaphors I'll prompt about that thank you kindly initial folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open if you have comments you would like to share feel free Any have we heard Yes, sir. All right. Thanks. Thanks for um, taking my call. Good evening. Um, I would like to say a, a few uh, quick things. Uh, first, about the Black Mirror episode, oh, Black Mirror show you had uh, the other day. Um, I wanted to say that uh, the show, you have to think about the episodes in reverse, like Mirror. You have to think about episodes in reverse. It helps you kind of, you know, kind of decipher some of the stuff in episodes. Um, also, I wanted to point out um, that Nelly Fuller Jr. and, of course, Dr. Francis Chris Wilson, um, their wisdom in the area of racist white supremacy um, is unmatched. And, of course, um, Dr. Francis Chris Wilson predicted Trump's um, win. And Dr. Nelly Fuller Jr., um, when he said that, you know, uh, the, the white people we need to wash down and spray down the White House, you know, you know, I was, you know, I was kind of confused. At, at, at that comment, but then I heard in the news that Trump said he wasn't going to move into the White House, and he, you know, he was going to delay his his uh, moving his family into the White House. I thought that was very interesting, and I and I uh, I applauded uh, Nelly Fuller Jr. for um, you know p- pointing that out that you know that was pretty much predicting that Trump was going to move in. Um, um, also, uh, I, I did want to point out one thing. Um, on the last conspiratory uh, call on last um, Saturday, um, I think Gus T. Ringy, I think you you told a Virginia caller that Virginia didn't have that many lynchings, but I did look it up, and I think you know I just wanted to be accurate and and, and logical. Um, I I looked it up, and it did say it was like a new article that said something about um, it was more than about more than ninety um, blacks got killed between I think it was 1882 and 1968 that 90 year period. And so I did the math on all the other um, states. Essentially the average was about one person, one black person being killed in every state, they averaged. So Virginia was about average. So it was kind of, so I, I was just kind of confused by that, but you know, you know, that's cool. But that's, that's, that's all I'd say. And I yield the rest of my time. Thanks. When you looked at those, uh, Numbers, uh, I'd be curious, like from, let's say, 1880 to 1940, uh, like the states that had the highest populations of lynchings total, uh, the numbers that I've seen, Virginia is not going to be at the top of those lists. But that would be something I'd be willing to look back at. But that's what what I base that on. Uh, And even that, it should be zero. It should be zero, but that's what uh, I based that comment on last week, that if you look at total numbers of black people uh, who died from lynchings over that period of time, uh, there are other states that will have a higher total population. But I will revisit, and a lot of those statistics, whites have lied a lot, so definitely I appreciate any effort to strive for accuracy on that. Definitely appreciate that. Yeah, I was just, yeah, I was just, I was just uh, using um, average and average, not, not, not just, just taking into account the ones that have the most, 
but like an average of all the states that had lynched black people over that time. So, I mean, the in the average, it averaged out to like, like I said, the average out could be in as much as Virginia was. So, so pretty, I was just saying that Virginia was pretty much like average. It wasn't really low. When you look at all the states combined, Virginia was probably average and, you know, Mississippi and other states were really high, extremely high. So, but yeah, thanks. Thanks for taking my call. Appreciate that. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, I'd like to comment on um, the Walter Scott. I want to ask you a question. That what happened first? Walt, did Walter Scott get killed and, and then uh, the Charleston Nine? Which one came first? Uh, Walter Scott was shot and killed first. Uh, Reverend Clementa Pinckney publicly spoke about the Walter Scott shooting. I played some of that audio clip during the uh, news segments at the beginning of the program. And then the uh, Charleston massacre, the shooting at the AME church, that happened in uh, June. So it was about a couple months or so. Uh, The church shooting happened a couple months after Walter Scott. And they assassinated that senator. Right, at the church, Reverend Clementa Pinckney. Oh, okay. Well, I have I have personal friends down in um, Charleston, and I'm not saying this in a derogatory way, but they do like they do love white people down there. They love they, they love they just are loving people. They love black people too, but they really they really uh, I could see why when he came up in that church how he I, he was treated good because they are loving people down there. I got a lot of good Gucci friends down there and everything. Uh, matter of fact, my friend that, that stay over there, uh, he let me stay over at his house and cleared his children out the room, cleared the children out the room, and I stayed in the children's room. But there are 11 people down there in Charleston, black people. And um, I hope that they free Mumia. I hope he make Mumia Dupe Jamal makes it on. Um, the pardon list and uh, that's it thank you yes sir Uh, seriously doubt racists are going to allow him uh, to be released Um, but I certainly uh, I would be elated if that did happen Uh, other folks that we haven't heard from can I be heard yes sir greetings everyone uh Shortly, I was uh, thinking of the uh, the lady with the children who was being terrorized, and uh, ironically, uh, within the past week in South Florida, there were at least three separate incidents of uh, of people who were shot, and at least two of them were shot to death. Uh, either they were already in someone's home or they were attempting to enter the home. One of the cases uh, where the uh, homeowner shot through the door, which is what I suggested to uh, this lady. Uh, one of, one of them was shot due to the uh, homeowner shooting through the door. Uh, 
in one of the cases, uh, the the uh, homeowner, white person, described three people that was in his house as black, quote unquote, black males, uh, and uh, shot uh, at least two of them, and one uh, later was pronounced dead. Uh, so, uh, and the reason why, once again, the reason why I made that suggestion, uh, because there's almost, there's almost no other alternative that I would know of, uh, if someone is banging on your door and, and about to kick the door in, you are, you and everybody else that you care about is in imminent danger, imminent danger. Uh, whereas, uh, you would not be able to determine on what they're going to do to you. Uh, you should be making up in your mind on what you are going to attempt to do to preserve yourself and the people that you care about. Uh, so I said all that to say, once again, I, I do make the suggestion that, uh, she, uh, arm herself. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you, Gus. Um, greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, uh, great show. I missed a, a healthy portion of it because I was out with my wife at, a, at an event, which went pretty well. Um, she's uh, starting a business, and I've been able to help her work with that, so it's been really good. But um, just to touch on some of the things that, that were brought up, um, the discussion on Dylan Roof, um, well, I read an article like earlier in the week that said that originally he was um, given the ability to defend himself um, in court. And as of, I think it was either yesterday or the day before yesterday, his attorneys are now fighting to take back over the case because they want to actually stop him from, uh, stop them from uh, giving him the death penalty. So again, they're forming like Voltron <laughs> to try and, uh, facilitate getting this mass murderer off. And um, uh, earlier you, you had actually said it was eight of them. It was actually nine of them, including Senator Pinckney. And I do agree with you, um, essentially, that it was an assassination. I found it very telling that they said that um, he was thinking about aborting his mission due to the fact that these black people were so nice to him. And then white supremacy trumped his uh, feeling that these were, you know, so-called good black people. And he went about doing what white supremacists do and killed all nine, nine of these people, sadly. Um, also, the um, clip in regards to the seven-year-old black male child that was uh, slammed against the wall and had his jaw broken by his uh, so-called educator. Um, it, to me, stories like this really exemplify why now that black people have the opportunity to no longer send their children voluntarily send their children to their enemies to be so-called educated, that we should be pulling our children out of their school system and schooling them at home just because of incidences like this and the fact that they're teaching uh, anti-sexual behavior to very young children as if this is normal um, activity. Um, so I think that this is just really a strong example as to why uh, we should not have our, people, our children in their schools, especially now that we have the opportunity to make a decision uh, to keep them out of the schools and teach them at home. That's just something I wanted to chime with. I think that's really important. 
And um, I wanted to say, too, in reference to the episode with Dr. Kevorkian on Black Mirror, I thought it was great. I didn't get to see any of the episodes, but listening to the show was just uh, phenomenal. Um, I'm glad that one of the listeners brought up Stripe, because the moment that you talked about the episode with Stripe, I immediately thought of the Gremlins, and I thought of them dehumanizing him by making him basically a Gremlin, calling him Stripe. And I also found it interesting that, of course, like the white people usually do, they so-called cannot pronounce African names. So because they couldn't say Kananga, they switched the name to Stripe. Just like when they couldn't pronounce the name Sindh, they changed it to Hind, and now we call Indians Hindus because of that reason. Um, and also the episode in which, uh, the, the, I think it was, was that one called Yorkie? Was it actually called Yorkie or just the white female was called Yorkie? Uh, just the white female. Her name is Yorkie. That episode is uh, San Junipero. Okay, I find that very telling. The reason why is because, of course, the Yorkie would be a dog. Um, and I find it that, to me, it equates to a subconscious um, idea of bestiality because the black female was sleeping with a Yorkie. Um, so I think it's kind of a way of tying um, tying bestiality to this black female in the form of this white female who has lost her proverbial white card because of the fact that she's sleeping with a black female. So now she's been um, made a subhuman, basically made a beast because she's choosing to be with a black female, and that's why they're calling her Yorkie. And then to facilitate a subconscious idea of bestiality being practiced by the black female sleeping with this sub-animal white female that is called Yorkie, I think that that was also um, a great, great part of the context of why she was named Yorkie and why that episode, the way it was described on the show, went the way it did. Um, uh, for now, thank you so much, and I'll, I'll meet my line. But I appreciate it. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Nine victims, Mother Emanuel Amy. Thank you kindly. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, other people that we haven't heard from, uh, if you have a hand up, uh, should be with us. Andy Hurt? Yes, ma'am. Uh, I was, I was the, the woman that wrote in um, last week. and um, Oh, uh, so glad that. to hear from you. If you could, uh, if oh. it sounds like if you could just speak a little bit softly. Uh, sounds like your volume okay. is up high, so just lower your voice and you should be great. Okay, can you hear me okay like this? A little bit softer, or maybe even if you could take a little bit more Turn distance from your down. microphone. Or, yep, that would work too. Okay. Does that work? Is that good? Still a little high, still a little high. Maybe back away from, can you back away from your mic a little bit? A little more distance, see if that works. I had the mic volume Uh Say that one more time. Uh, that's a little too far down. Give <laughs> a little bit more volume. Okay, is this better? That's perfect. Okay. Um, yeah, so I I did have some comments for the clips that were played, um, particularly regarding children and talking to children about um, racism so that they understand. My sons have had some experiences with um other children at their same age level, um, their children are not speaking to them, you know, when, and this is when they were toddlers, just being friendly. Um, so I do think that indoctrination starts at a very young age in terms of who they, who white children are taught to socialize with or not. Um, and then in terms of teacher interactions, 
there's always an attempt to label black boys in particular um, as being disruptive or um, not doing, you know, staying on task. And, and that has definitely been the case. And that's something that I have had to deal with for my sons with their teachers when they were just talking in class. All kids talk in class, and that's not being disruptive. Um, so that was my comment with regards to that. I don't think we do our, our children any service um, by keeping them in a bubble. Um, and there are ways to talk about it without frightening them, um, but keeping them aware at the same time. Um, and then my other comment was regarding... Oh, before you get your other comment, can you give us uh, one more increase in volume, just slightly? Oh, okay. Is that better? Yes. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Um, and then regarding Dylan Roof, I also saw the article where it said he had a, a high IQ. Um, and I thought that was particularly interesting because we always hear, oh, this is just a display of ignorance. Um, on the part of this isolated, lone, white shooter. Um, and so I think it, it, it's useful information that they label him as highly intelligent, but my, my thoughts are how he will use that to um, give his views and his perspective a wider platform um, in the trial and how that's going to manifest with his interactions. Um, in the courtroom, and, and will he, you know, use the courtroom as his his platform to speak and share more of his um, white supremacist ideas? Um, so the, those were my comments uh, regarding the clip. All right, on. Did what? Did you want to share about um, what you wrote about last week, or? Did you want to wait? The update? Yeah. I, I didn't know if you wanted to wait and get everybody else's, but yeah, I can share. Um, so, so far, um, I was in court earlier this week, and the neighbor did not show up for court. Um, and I haven't seen him since the incident took place on Thanksgiving night. Um, the temporary order was extended until um, next week, Thursday, which we have to go back again to court. And that is where um, the judge said that you will have the opportunity to present evidence and any witnesses um, to substantiate maintaining the, the protective order. So that's where that stands. That time-wasting thing is really important. I'm sorry, were you going to share more? Um, it, it's, it's a big inconvenience for me, um, for sure, because that's now two days where I've had to um, take off time from work, um, which is a, a big inconvenience, not just for me, um, but because of the line of work that I'm in. I cancel my day, and I'm, I'm disrupting a lot of people's schedules and appointments and things when that happens. So hopefully this can get um, rectified on Thursday. And then um, agree to make it a permanent order. Wow. 
I know a lot of listeners to folks from last week, uh, just number one, uh, they're definitely, uh, their prayers, their thoughts uh, were with you last week, continue to be with you and, and hoping not just you, but your children having uh, small young boys uh, there who were there. And for people who didn't hear this race soldier, this white terrorist, he comes over and you know says that they're making noise, which had not been the case, uh, which he tells him. Uh, he then kicks the door uh, as she's trying to close it. He kicks the door as being loud, vulgar, uh, yelling. Uh, she calls the police. They are, you know, less than, you know, the best citizens uh, in dealing with all of this. But protective order. And that's the update that she gave us this uh, gave us this week. She wrote in the details last week. Uh, the time wasting aspect. I'm so glad you touched on that because that's huge uh, in terms of the system of racism, white supremacy, even where you are the victim. But you now have to continue to be penalized, having to take up all your time and energy and how it disrupts other things that you're trying to do in your day. And I'm sure even disrupts, you know, the, the routine that you would have with your children in some way, shape or form. Um, just that. And then it's still not resolved. Where is this guy? What is he doing? Uh, just still not feeling safe, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure other folks uh, have questions. I, I even just wanted to ask just how explain because i mean that goes right back to the core of what i talked about at the beginning like how have you processed all of this with your children um so i guess <laughs> your, your word comes up context give some more context um this has been in this is this instance has been the culmination of a, a few things um when we moved into our current residence um, in the summer, on the day of settlement, this person knocked on the door to complain of noise. We hadn't moved furniture in or anything, and he did that twice in like a two to four hour period that we were here just starting to clean. Um, so that was our first interaction with him, and that just continued where anytime he felt there was noise and my my children are not toddlers, so it's not like they're falling down on the floor and picking them up and things like that. They're old enough where you can say, okay, you know, don't run in the house, and they won't run in the house. But they are children. Um, and I was on my guard after the second time that he rang the doorbell because um, I've been a listener of the show for a few years now, and I saw it as an attempt to try to control what was going on in my home. Um, and so I took notice of that. I also took note of his demeanor because he doesn't seem like someone who has very good social skills. There wasn't much eye contact. He was kind of jumpy and jittery and, you know, just off. Um, so this pattern of whenever he feels like there is noise that he thinks he can come over and ring the doorbell to complain. That per, that that continues from from when we first moved in to now. Um, the only thing that has stopped him is now that we have this protective order in place. Um, but after the first two interactions, I started keeping a log of when he was ringing the doorbell. We also um, started writing down if there were any type of conversations that happened at the door 
And then for the most part, because it was only him ringing the doorbell unannounced, um, we just would, you know, not answer the door because we knew it was nobody but him. Um, so that's to give you some context. Um, I do believe he has a psychological issue or mental problem in some way. I don't know the specifics of it, um, but I do know that just because of the, the program that I know him to be in. There's that background. Um, as far as how we are handling it, um, the boys and I talk about it so they know. Um, you can speak up now. It's not uh, before. It was just it was distorting oh. your voice, but now you can speak up. Okay. Uh, just you've been so he. You think he has psychological issues, and then so talking to this with your your boys. Oh yeah. So um, they already have known, you know, not to answer the door um, without. You know, looking through the peephole and pretending, you know, don't even bother to answer the door. Um, and they know about the incident that happened. My family is also aware, and so um, they have come by more frequently um, in the past week as well. So that's kind of how we're handling it. I did um, listen to archives and I really appreciated the feedback from everyone that, that listened in. Um, and there are some things that I had planned to do and they were echoed. And so I, I do plan to go forward with doing those things. Awesome, awesome documentation being important uh, outside the workplace setting uh, thought that was great and I'm uh, I'm absolutely overjoyed uh, that you have uh, resources in terms of having uh, family members to come by and increase their frequency and coming by to check on you and you know just make sure everyone's doing okay I think that is uh, just outstanding a plus black self-respect all the way around uh, for everyone coming to make sure you have additional uh, support, but it's not just taking this seriously. Uh, when we talk about this all the time, uh, in terms of this is war, racism, white supremacy, and how we behave. Um, I didn't want to just make it a whole interview. Uh, so I guess other people might have questions that they want to ask as well. Um, again, I don't want to make it a whole interview, but I'm sure other people might have questions or suggestions or what have yeah. you. So if you're hanging. Okay. If you're hanging out, if folks want to get a question in as well, but uh, I'll try to pick back up. So the people that we have not heard from uh, moving forward, uh, if you all have commentary, if you have uh, thoughts on the situation uh, with our female caller, black mother here, if you have comments on that or questions, uh, we'll sprinkle those in as we go. And then people that have already shared, if you had a question or comment on what we just heard from the black mom, uh, we can make that happen as well. But people that we have not heard from at all, did you all have uh, comments or questions? Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, folks we have not heard from. Uh, let's see. Other folks that we have not heard from at all. Any other people that we have, have not you heard? Yes, sir. Um, yeah. I was listening to the clips earlier, and um, 
man, um, they're very um intuitive, um, especially about the one about um, um Ronald Gasser, the um the shooter, um in New Orleans. Um I'm still learning, um it for some reason I I just was, was angry about that, that whole situation. It's not that um it's being considered a a um a hate crime. It's the fact that a murderer is free, you know. And um um you know, it's it's like a I'm still learning. Um and uh, off the slaughter case um in um South Carolina man, that that was like um a a gridlock jury. Come on man, that's 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 um that's unbelievable, but it happens, you know. Um man, it's <laughs> it's it's uh, mind boggling, um but um but um I've been listening to the show, the podcast, and um, it's, it's very like you know informative, and um, and um, I'm working on being constructive and listening to um, the callers and the book readings and everything. It just you know, but I'm still amazed at how um, racism, white supremacy is um, it's a dominant factor. It's, you know, all my life, my parents have. Um, told me I could be anything I want to be, you know, and I was was raised in a generation where, you know, where we're, we're told that things were getting better, but it seems like things haven't changed. It seems like, you know, ever since we've been um, in America, um, things have just gone, got worse. And um, I'll be one of the call. But um, Gus, it's really, um, um, it's, it's a great show, man. Oh, appreciate it. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. The uh, Walter Scott uh, trial, I think a lot of people have been commenting uh, on that and what's what's going down in South Carolina, on both fronts in South Carolina with that trial and then the preparation for uh, Dylan Stormroof. Lots of attention still uh, on that state. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all have commentary. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Greetings, everybody. Um, there was three stories that I wanted to make a comment about. For the for Miss Hassan with the hijab, I thought it was, um, I like to pinpoint patterns of behavior that I'm observing in white people and tactics that they're using. This one isn't new, but I felt like, I feel like the person that, was interviewing her was a white male. Um, and white people are always asking non-white people what should be done about racism. And I just think that that's so fascinating. Like every time white people start talking about it, they're always asking non-white people what, you know, should be done, what should we do? And like in some way it's almost a little sadistic because if we knew, I feel like we would have done it. Like if we knew what to do, to end those, just like to just end it all together, we would have done it by now. Um, but anyway, that happened in that one. And then um, for the clip about the black male or or the white male who was like text terrorizing a black male because 
his white female is about to date him. If I have that 100% correct, I might not. But that's the story that I'm talking about. I had written down before the guy said it that, um, you know, the white men are always talking about black men going and raping these white women. And they, and then the, the interviewer or the person speaking said that um, that's because the white men were always raping the black women. Um, but yes, and then, but I also thought, I don't even think that that's the full story. Um, I feel like they just know that white women don't really like white men like that. And when white men are honest, they don't really like white women like that. No one, I don't want to say no one, I'm sure people are talking about it, but I don't hear about it very often, but I don't think that they really like each other all like that, um, or really that attractive to, attracted to each other in their natural state when they're not having as much propaganda on the TV that um, changes the way that they look or puts in their face that they're attractive. Like, you know, there's a whole lot of propaganda that's supposed to make white people attractive to non-white people, but also really to white people too. But then he ended up saying it, that there's this fear that uh, if this white female goes black, that she'll never go back. And I really think that should be talked about a little bit more than this whole, well, we white men were raping the black women. So when we so-called freed the enslaved African people, all the black men were going to turn around and rape all the white women, like, I don't even think that, like I was just saying, was what they were really thinking. They were just thinking, well, if everybody's free, all of our white women will want to go and be with these black men, um, and we won't be able to, you know, have white women. So anyway, and I think outside of, you know, I may be incorrect, I don't know, but I'll just postulate it, put it out there. Outside of white men having resources and power and all that other kind of stuff, they're not really appealing to non-white females um, for various reasons, which I won't enumerate. But outside of having, you know, us be so um, psychologically confused and us having been terrorized for so long and looking at, and you know, the whole concept of a white Jesus and stuff like that, like if none of that happened, I don't think that we would really be looking at white men like saviors or something to go do or be with. Um, and then finally, for the story for Louisiana um, with McKnight, and that's just real tragic and scary. Number one, because I didn't hear about it when it happened. And I was like, really, this is not getting crazy coverage. And then number two, again, because it's not someone who's a police officer and then three, it's something as benign as driving. And, you know, like, my mother says people drive how they are. And I like to get to where I'm going. And when I read that, like, you know, if you go too slow, I'm going to dip from behind you and move. Like, I don't wait. And it had me wonder, you know, one day someone could misread that and think I'm trying to initiate some type of aggressive car driving fight with them and follow me. And next thing you know, I'm getting out, getting ready to go to Walmart, getting gunned down by somebody who misread, you know, took something personal. I mean, it's to that point now. And, well, it's always been there. But this, um, what happened to McKnight definitely um, brought that to the forefront for me because I do deal a lot with people in their cars. I'm not going to even front on that. And so I looked up the whole Sandra Ground. I'm the one, I'm 1842. I'm out here in Virginia. And um, 
just to see because they haven't even charged him. I don't even think that there's anything to really dispute. You were in your car. You could have rolled your window up or you could have driven off. Like, no one said that you had to stay there, even if he did come out to the passenger side of your car. So, but because you felt threatened, you could just go ahead and kill him because it's a stand-your-ground state. And so, um, and as far as I understand, all white people feel threatened by black people, even if we raise our voice or don't smile. So what is to say that this doesn't get out of hand or continue to get out of hand? Um, And then it just kind of brought back to the forefront again how Dr. Welsing would say, number one, that racism and white supremacy functions on non-white people's emotional reaction, um, but number two, how imperative it is that we get a deeper understanding or overstanding, however people want to phrase it, of racism and white supremacy and get our emotions together and calm down. Because, see, for us, being called the N-word or being verbally aggressed is the same as throwing punches. So a lot of people would look at that story and see that that white male aggressed McKnight first and McKnight got out getting ready to just kind of, you know, well, let's do this. You know, you would already started the fight pretty much. Like we don't know what this white male said and they know that they can provoke us with words and know that we're so emotional about it and sensitive about it. And so, but it's McKnight who lost his life and it's white male sitting there, not even charged, like having just killed somebody at home, chilling, doing whatever, probably watching a football game. Um, and I just thought about that, that like calm needs to be like the word that we spread and, and really codifying to just not engage white people whatsoever. Because I can, I can see Stand Your Ground becoming a national um, policy. Thanks. For sure. With that uh, report about uh, the black female, uh, and this was a black female, this is not just uh, a... A uh, female who classified herself as a Muslim, who was lighter complexion, wanted this is someone who visibly, phenotypically, looks like they would be classified as black, highly melanated. Um, but this black female who's Muslim, who was attacked at Mary Gates at the University of Washington, uh, like we have broadcast from that exact building where she was assaulted. Like the program when we had Timothy Wise on in 2010, where he admitted to being a racist. Uh, when we had uh, Dark Matter. Uh, on the program, uh, Tater Pie, when we was on a numerous times, like we did numerous broadcasts uh, from that exact building uh, where she was violently uh, assaulted uh, at the University of Washington. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from? Um, may I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Good evening, everyone. Um, on the case with the... Um, seven-year-old second grader who had his jaw broken, his teeth knocked out, and was having flashbacks. I have tried to impress upon people that these people are your enemies. (laughs) You are giving your children to them. I get sick in the stomach when I see that yellow school bus pass by. Plus, uh, I think I maybe mentioned that yesterday that I saw that uh, FBI report that was track the hate crimes after Donald Trump was elected and they they did two sets of pie graphs one pie graph was uh, what uh, what ethnicity or what group of people received the most hate crimes and um, the people who received the most hate crimes were immigrants and then after that was black people and but there were I was surprised there were a lot of Jewish people too they had a great a, 
a really big section of that pie. And uh, then they did another pie graph that said, uh, where did the hate crimes occur? The uh, number one place for hate crimes was in a public place. And the second place for hate crimes was in K through 12. So the children are at a great deal of risk. I saw no problem with Gus having justice on his show, and that made me talk to the 10th grader that I watch out for, and I think I have been able to help him. It was, uh, we are both uh, hyper aware of our situations. Just this evening, I did not know I was supposed to be mm, babysitting, and the doorbell rang, <laughs> and I was really cautious, really cautious, and he didn't see me open it right away. He said, yeah, I need to step back from that door. And I'm like, yeah, everybody needs to be really hyper vigilant, and he is vigilant, and he's looking at the situation in its totality for what dangers it may be when dealing with anyone, even his beloved. So, um, next about the running, I was saying, you know, I was I was stressing out here, saying, gosh, you know. I'm, you know, I'm out in the middle of nowhere, and now I can't walk down the road. Some crazy white person might shoot me. But then, you know, I had a reality check, and, you know, when I would be here, my family, they would be following me from like a mile back when I was running, you know, and I was in my 40s then. So this is this is long before Trump, and I remember even on this show, I was talking about an episode where three of the sheriff's deputies just, you know, rolled up on me, and I was just down the road talking on the corner to a neighbor. So I just uh, want to say it's worse, but maybe it's not worse here. It's just my awareness is, has been peaked even more. Um, let me see which other episode that you talked about. Oh, about uh, the tattoos and things. I was uh, deeply affected by Dr. Francis Cresswell's and uh, saying that I lack self-esteem, but um, and I think that's just going to bother me for the rest of my natural life. But I pretty much figured out what that was: is I uh, lack self-esteem when it comes to black men. I always, you know, I I went pretty high up in school, and it seems like the higher I get, got, and there were fewer black men. They only wanted white women, and uh, that's probably going to be an issue I deal with forever. But um, 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 a black man did tell me in the hardware store the other day that he loves country women. He says, you have natural hair and no makeup and no tattoos. <laughs> so I was very pleased about that. But uh, I, uh, I don't see how tattoos make us even more beautiful because I think that black skin is really, really beautiful. And I find white skin creepy. And just the thought of these white people coming out and showing their legs after a winter and having all of that white skin that's really, really white. And I don't even know how they animate it. It's just, it's already starting to freak me out. White people with a winter with no sun freaks me out. And last but not least, um, and this is uh, in connection to nothing, I guess. But I just, uh, I was reading online, and white people are really uh, nervous about the Neanderthals being um, extincted, just white, wiped out. I'm using that because you, I heard you use it. But uh, that the Neanderthals have been uh, just, you know, extinguished. They just, they don't understand why. And now that they realize that they're part Neanderthal, they're really freaked out about it, but they keep it pretty quiet. And I'm like, maybe that's something we can use. 
Okay, that's it. Thank you. Hmm. Fascinating. Uh, other folks uh, who have a hand up, if we have not heard from you, uh, you should feel free to chime in. Um, could I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Yes, um, well, first about the different news stories that um, you you had played earlier in the segment. Um, Walt Scott, you know, rest in peace or whatever, you know. Um, it sounds like, and it looks like, the white collective will continue to try to justify black people who are not posing any threat to a white person. They're going to continue to try to justify the execution no matter what. Um, It's obvious that that guy, Walter Scott, was not trying to harm him. He was running away. Back was turned. You know, everyone saw that. And I'm even suspect about the ankle holster, which I'm thinking could have even been an ankle monitor. Like people were plant evidence just like that guy dropped something. <clears throat> Lord knows what it was. <clears throat> By Walter Scott's body, you know, he dropped something. But so they will they will tamper with evidence, you know, and victims of racism will watch them tamper with evidence and you know, so it's like we're impotent, you know, like Needle Fuller say the impotent male or you know, in my case I'll say the impotent male and impotent female, victims of racism. We will watch them tamper with evidence and so 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 all it out to me, I'm just speaking in the way, in my view, the way I look at the world. That can't be trusted. I don't even feel that he had. He, he could have had, but he could not have had. But if he did, regardless, was it was the gun illegal? Did he have? Was he a felon? Why is it even a question about did he have a gun? So now we're supposed to say that any black person with a gun is automatically guilty. You know, in, in in the case of Philandro Castile, he had a gun. He had a right to carry a gun. You know, so does that make him? Does that make him automatically deserving of murder or the death? You know, so if he was legally carrying a firearm, so what? You know, if he was legally carrying a firearm, he wasn't pulling the firearm out. He wasn't a gay. You know, but with you know, it's kind of. But that that was my point on on on, on Walter Scott and you know about the about the child that was you know assaulted by the assistant teacher. No arrest was made of the teacher, you know, assaulting the child. But that's to be expected. We live in a system of white supremacy, you know, and it just the word I'm looking for. I probably can't find it. But what I would say is it's demoralizing. All of this black death is very demoralizing. And 
our quickness to move on past all of this back there to celebrate a football game or the latest whatever, a trend or whatever the case may be, is even not only demoralizing but causing me to be disillusioned with even the idea that we will um, even end this system. But, you know, I'm only human and I'm a victim of racism. And, you know, there are some ancient folklore that say we will make it past this, but I don't see it. The fact that white women overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump. But you still have all these non-white women seeking solidarity with white women, even though they overwhelmingly voted for Trump, marching to Washington. So it's like our mindset and concept of what it means to be white is is just, I don't know, we just victims. You know, we descend from slaves for the most part in this part of the world, and it's just our confusion is to be expected. Thank you for letting me share what I had to say. Be not discouraged, uh, caller in Alabama. Be not discouraged. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, uh, do you all have commentary? Other people that we have not heard from at all? Never heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, hello to you, Gus, the host, and to all the callers and listeners on the line. Just a couple of things that I want to say just from, you know, this to the conversation. And I do appreciate, well, first thing, let me ask, how is Justice doing? Because I didn't have no problem with her being on the show either. How is she doing? Taking down to 18. All right. Okay. It was great. Great. And see, and, and, and her being, and it's so sad because her being so young, being on the show where she did have some knowledge about what was going on. And, and let me just give you an example of, of, of when I say she had knowledge of what was going on. I remember one, one show I heard in the archives that you had Cheryl Judice on, and you remember that when she was talking about, and like you were saying, she had these interracial marriages are sad, and, you know, she was like saying that, oh, you know, these are the best uh, relationships. And she, I think it was some question that she made a statement that, she had never been had any problem with white people or something like that. And I remember when she left the show, Justice said something to the fact that she's like in the wrong area. She should be writing books to tell us black people what do we need to do to keep from not having problem with white people since she said she wasn't having problem with white people. And I just thought that statement from, I guess at the time maybe she was 10 or 11 years old, I was just like, boom, there it is. So for those who, you know, came at you, it's really sad. It's almost understanding because it's just something about us as black people when we feel that we just should not talk about about this stuff because we don't want our children to hate white people. And um, I'll just say this, uh, something I read tonight on Facebook where, like, one thing black people, we got to get it through our head that racism, white supremacy, or the system of racism, white supremacy, or the system of racism, anti-blackness, is business. It's not about love or hate. We got to get that through our heads. Let me make my comment and I'll, I'll, I'll meet myself. Listen to the things tonight. There are things that are very demoralizing. We can't keep hearing day, day in, day out of black people being just shot out in the street and white folks going home to watch the next football game. 
and go talk to their friends about how to bag me a nigga. You know, maybe you better go out there and get you one. Because, you know, and they try to be funny. In those households, and when they talk to their friends, you know that is some of the conversation. I tell that to say this, you know, we, we see the stuff with, with Slaker. Video, you know, but still now you got a juror, a juror saying, you know, I just can't, you know, convict him because basically the jurors believe this what it, you know, I can't convict a white man for killing, you know, a nigger. He, sh- you know, and, and they are scared of him. Even shot him in the back, it doesn't make any difference to white people. You know, the case with the uh, football player and something I read tonight where this white man that shot him, and I understand this is like the second road rage incident he has had. But yet he's at home tonight. And um, listen, to my radio earlier today, it was something like the police chief or the DA saying that, well, we don't have a timeline, and you know, which to me means that, yeah, I guess sometime next year after the holiday, they'll let us know there's not going to be any charges. But the, the, but the DJ on the radio says the man confessed to the killing. What do you mean you don't have a timeline? So we know what that is. I'm saying all that to say this. In 1965, the Voting Rights Act was uh, put into law, if you will. Last year, the Voting Rights Act was gutted. Um, The Fourth Amendment, last year, the Fourth Amendment, which is the amendment that gives unlawful searches and seizures, was also gutted. I'm saying all that to say, you know, black people, we don't have any rights today. We're not getting justice in the courts. You know, we, we, on the street, the police, the police are acting like the judge, the jury, and the executioner. So we're not getting justice, you know, uh, in court. And, and even the family, I think it was Keith Scott, uh, that even some of the things that the lawyer was saying, you know, like, well, this means one thing, this means something else. And I'm like, well, if the DA is saying that there's not going to be any charges, it means there's not going to be any charges. And so I think that we really have, and we have to do, we have to fight back. This isn't about, we're not going to convince white people that, oh, we're humans, you need to treat us like this. These people, their default is to hurt us. They get awful seeing us in pain, blase, 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 blase. I mean, the uptick of when Trump was, I mean, he's just the president-elect. You know, so I can close my eyes sometimes and imagine what will, what's going to happen after he gets inaugurated and becomes the president. So I, I think that, we have to realize that, you know, kind of like the Dred Scott decision. You know, black men have no rights, black man, black woman, that white mankind, uh, uh, rights that white mankind has to respect or whatever the, the same is. And I think that we have to wake up to this. You know, we have no rights. So I, I get like Karma says, you know, um, we do need to pull our children out of these schools. Um, it is something that that teacher hasn't been arrested for throwing that. I, I think he hit him myself, but throwing him against the wall and breaking his jaw. You know, and um, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want to go on and on, but I do think that there's just some things that we have to come to the realization. Let me say this, I'm going to say, the gentleman before me, it is something like he said about white women, what they did. And I know this March coming up on Washington, I was on the Facebook post yesterday and I'm like, for me, no black woman should even waste her time. And I had black women taking me on. Basically said, we need to be there. And I'm like, white women, one girl said to me, what are you talking about? I said, you could look at just a month ago, November the 8th, and you see what these white women did. So I had them taking me on, basically saying that, oh, no, we should be there, blah, 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 blah. 
So I get what the gentleman was saying. I just wanted to say that thank you, and I'll meet my line. Thank you. For sure. Other people that we have not heard from at all, you had commentary? Uh, yes, sir. Thomas in New York. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers. Um, great show as always. I wasn't able to hear all of the um, hear all of the clips. I had I heard the first few because I had to jump on and get to the presentation. But um, I wanted to say, uh, in my opinion, Castro, best president ever. Um, and um, I've noticed in the news. A lot of those white Cubans are so happy he's dead. I mean, and, and I just find it um, very ironic that the darker Cubans, even those that came over, they, they made it seem like they fled the island, like El Duque and, then it's, you know, the baseball players and stuff. Even after they finished, they went back home, you know, so it couldn't have been that bad. Um, that play, that play, that play, that play, excuse me? He played with Bill Mayer um, when he talks about the tattoos. You know, what stands out to me is that um, he made a comment like the Little Mermaid is hot, you know, and I just thought pedophilia, huge part of white culture. Um, you know, the Young Turks clip I heard, I think they were talking about Gus the Renegade. <laughs> um, the lady just spoke about the graph of Trump incidents and stuff. Uh, what I noticed is, uh, in the graph I saw, the most incidents have taken place in the places that he lost. Um, New York, California, Washington, Oregon, um, places where um, it seemed as though at least they told us Hillary Clinton won. Um, seems like those are the places that have the most racial incidents taking place, which leads me to believe that they're just trying to show everybody else that they're um, with it. Um at, at the, the work site, I um, was talking to a nurse, and I found out that she went to the same high school I went to. And she told me, uh, you know, that the guy, when I was in high school, there was a disciplinarian, uh, a brother. Um, he they, they, they weren't none. We had brothers. Um, they're from the Marist order. And um, in particular, the head disciplinarian, um, who I'll never forget, you know, my freshman year out of 178 school days, I had 176 detentions, you know, and that would stand up for an hour after school. But uh, he was um, uh, accused of um, molesting little kids, um, little boys. Uh, he had, I guess, over the years went to um, the firefighters area down in, um, in Florida, and um, he, um, some kids from the wrestling team, um, came out and accused him of um, molesting them. And, um, but they, the statutes of limitation had ran out. They, they let him out of the, the order, and um, now he's a nurse. So it just goes to show how they get transferred. But either way, his name was um, Kenneth Ward, and uh, I was shocked to hear it. I'm not shocked, but, you know, just like, man, I can't believe it. Uh, I could believe it, but, you know, either way. Um, last thing I wanted to say, was uh, make a comment on the guest you had, um, who was a African male. Um, I don't know if uh, or he, uh, um, he was a European black man, I believe, from Jamaica. You know who I'm talking about, Gus? Are you talking about Paul F. Grant from last week? Absolutely. 
um, he seemed to have a lot of contention toward um, black Americans. And uh, it got me thinking. Um, you know, for some reason, I, I noticed that a lot of the, the not, not the people who come on the Sunday show, at least, you know, not from what they say, but a lot of people, black people from other places, seem to have a contention toward black people from here. And they always come up with this notion like somehow we're weak. And I would just, I wish I was able to chime into that show because, in my opinion, what we're dealing with and what they're dealing with in Europe is totally different white people. You know, like if these white people here ever decided they wanted to get rid of the white people there, it would take, what, a week? I mean, it would be just massive slaughter. They, they have no idea. They, well, they know that they kicked out of their country because they couldn't handle it anymore. So I think that they leave out the fact that we're dealing with a totally different breed of white people than what they have over there. And I'm eating my life. Mm. I just think the system of white supremacy, it's not discounting that at all. I think the system of white supremacy, we're just very encouraged to uh, have a lot of contempt for other black people. We don't see black people as victims of racism and just tend to have a lot of fun talking bad or talking down uh, about other victims. That is a very enjoyable pastime, unfortunately. Uh, But definitely I see the logic in what you're, you're sharing as well. You, you remember a clip, I think you played it, or, or maybe Nelly Fuller said it when he came on the show, and he was like, um, when Hitler was about to go into France, and he knew that was going to be easy. You know, they over there sipping wine and drinking crump, eating crumpets, you know, you remember that? Mm-hmm. Um, saying that we, yeah, that, that's exactly what it would be if they ever had to go over there. I mean, these people wake up and eat niggas, you know what I'm saying? I mean, go to a courthouse early in the morning, and you'll see how much they eat us. And those people have no idea what we're going up against here. Nothing. Metaphor there. But uh, I understand the logic and the point being presented. Uh, Other folks have commentary? Anybody that we have not heard from at all? If you haven't heard from you at all, you should speak now. Uh, Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, Yeah, this is uh, Ken Steele in Los Angeles. And... uh, I just wanted to say that, um, <coughs> sorry, after the events of this week, I think it's abundantly clear that um, victims of racism, white supremacy, we need to make an effort to teach the children um, that the uh, people who classify themselves as white represent a mortal existential threat um, just in their being. Um, I think that one thing that we can see is that um, these people have no intention on slowing down their, uh, I guess, operation to, um, it appears to geared uh, towards legalizing um, the extermination of black people or the um, deputization of every single gun-carrying white person in this country. I think that uh, we need to make an effort to teach our children that these people represent mortal danger. I think that those of us, um, including myself, I think that we've been programmed or educated in such a way that we do not, or it might be that we cannot, um, see these people as mortal threats 
that need to be handled. I think that that is the primary social concern that black people, those of us who are non-white victims of white supremacy, that we need to address. That is the number one concern. I think that every other social concern that we are presented with or that we are um, addressing, I think that that is a very, very um, concerted effort on the part of many victims of racism to avoid this problem. I think that when you see victims of white supremacy suddenly talking about uh, things like Standing Rock or, uh, or um, problems in Syria, I think that that is just our way of trying to cope with um, our inability to deal with the problem that we are presented here um, uh, at our homes. Um, also, I just wanted to include that um, if anybody is, uh, if anybody is, um, I guess, uh, uh, a highly skilled technical worker, um, I have the ability and uh, I guess I've been afforded some resources that allow me to quickly connect with um, people that are hiring for these positions. So um, if any victims of white supremacy would like kind of to be fast-tracked into um, some serious, um, lucrative technical positions, uh, feel free to contact Gus um, to get my contact information, and uh, we can uh, hopefully work something out. Um, and I guess with that said, I, I, I have some other things to contribute, but I will mute my line at this time. Thank you so much. Until justice at gmail.com. Until justice at gmail.com and you can just put uh, Ken Steele contact in the uh, subject and I will forward the information along Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all anybody that we have not heard from at all have commentary can I be heard yes sir okay Uh, greetings to Gus and uh listeners and the callers, this is uh, Rob chiming in from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, man, I've been going to uh, college at night, um, and the program that I'm in before I enrolled, uh, somebody at the institution told me that um, that because I do have a felony conviction that uh, my felony would not restrict me in the field that I was pursuing. Um, so fast forward a little bit into the semester, uh, one of my classes is actually an orientation that they have with other students that's in the program and other professors that's in the program as well. And in the orientation, they say that, oh, it's going to be a background check, and depending on what comes up in your background, that's going to restrict you from uh, where you will be able to work. Um, so... Ever since then, I kind of been knocked off balance. Um, not really, um, man. Not even really taking it serious. Um, I think I was like a grade short of a uh, all A's last semester, and I'm probably like the same place this semester. But man, I just ain't feeling it. Um, damn, they're about to drop out. And, 
man, I'm getting sucked back in to this mess that's out here. You know what I'm saying? And, um, man, I'm just kind of losing focus a little bit. And, um, you know, man, them teachers in the classroom, um, my first semester, I had three black professors and one white professor, and uh, this year, uh, I have uh, three white professors and one black professor, and uh, it's like, um, it's really different. Um, I've had uh, a couple of classroom situations where um, my emotional response was to just leave the classroom, um, you know, with, uh, I think, a uh, common black male response is effort, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, whatever. And, um, man, that's just kind of where I'm at with it. Uh, thanks for taking the call. Hmm. Thank you for sharing. That sounds like workplace racism right there, man. Um, I, I definitely appreciate you sharing. I know it's, it's tons of people out there listening that can... Uh, relate uh, myself included uh, just that sort of stressful environment I mean this basically is workplace racism even though it's a classroom setting uh, but just having these race soldiers as your educator as your instructor just that has such a phenom- it, it has such an adverse impact on our relationship to learning and even just as you're saying in my opinion uh, even your interest in wanting to to be involved in this whole process and then you know they're messing around and and maybe implying that you know all this might be for nothing uh that you know maybe we can you know have some sort of employment situation set up for you or maybe not or maybe it'll be a lesser uh type thing just whites can do a lot of those uh can practice racism in a variety of ways that just really uh just sap your motivation your zest for life or even wanting to do well i think mr fuller's also talked a lot about how we end up having a low level of ambition as a result of racism white supremacy that's why when you have racists for instructors and then racists keep you from doing what you want to do reaching all your potential uh in your chosen field that's how you end up with a lot of victims of racism who have a low level of ambition so uh and i I can say personally i know people who same position where system of white supremacy they're looking to arrest us for any reason they end up having some sort of a criminal record and then that ends up for the rest of their life have difficulties with employment and they go through all these uh, steps to do this get this certification take this class do this do this do this and then you get to them it's oh yeah you do have that criminal yeah i don't think we're, I, I have seen that up close and personal so all of that is by design uh, i know it's easier said than done in terms of uh staying motivated because i mean that's exactly what racists do not want you to do to stay motivated uh so that you can go into that classroom and not get upset i think uh 1842 talked about us really making sure that we can stay calm to the best of our ability a lot of times easier said than done but just continue you going in there and being a scholar a black scholar staying in that class and knowing something about racism in my view that does a lot more damage uh than the effort route that a lot of us take and, you know, just leave in and, and what have you. I could be an error, and I know that is difficult, but racists do not want to see us getting more quality uh, information and, and trying, at least making an effort to try to do constructive things with our time and energy, if that makes sense. Uh, other folks who doubt in, did we miss anybody, anybody that we didn't hear from at all? I think our Caller in Colorado uh, rung in not too late today. Glad she uh, didn't wait till the last minute. Did you have a commentary you wanted to share, ma'am? I do. <laughs> How are you doing, guys? Right, How poorly. Good to hear from you. 
<laughs> what you say? Write poorly. I'm doing right poorly, but it is good to hear from you. Right. Well, good to be here. Um, I have more of a, uh, I, it's a little bit of an off-topic um, question that has to do with um, Frances Cress Welsing and um, her theory. Um, I think, well, I know everything that we're seeing in the media, uh, specifically this week, um, is in response to the threat of white genetic annihilation. And um, I just, I feel like in effort to try to understand what this war is, um, I'm not clearly understanding uh, remedies for that. I, I remember seeing footage of her uh, talking about um, if she could wave a magic wand that she would have, um, you know, black men um, in school until they're 35 and then marry and have children, black women in school till they're 30, and then, you know, have children. And I think what I'm not understanding is that they're threatened by our numbers, they're threatened by um, our genetic dominance. If, if black people are waiting that long to bear children, doesn't that, like, lessen our numbers? Doesn't that, like, um, stagnate our growth? So, like, what, what is the, the, the way to understand that? The question was, if there is fear of white genetic annihilation, uh, one of Dr. Francis Cress Welsing's suggestions was that uh, black males, black females wait uh, until they're in their 30s before having children uh, and not doing a lot of the having children at a very young age before you're able to adequately uh, care for them. That was one of the big things that she talked about regularly on this program and elsewhere. Uh, and so your, your question is, if we implement that strategy, uh, wouldn't that potentially lower the number of non-white people being, uh, being born, uh, thus in some way aiding racism, white supremacy? Is that the question? Correct. Yeah, okay. okay. Uh, does anybody want to respond to that uh, question? Yes, sir. Uh, I think Dr. Welsing was speaking about uh, quality more so than quantity, uh, when she was uh, talking about her ideas on uh, when should non-white black people uh, uh, think about and or uh, engage into uh, uh, the process of producing uh, offsprings. Uh, uh, she specifically mentioned uh, for example, the two the two different ages, uh, primarily because uh, um, females uh, are uh, more mature. Uh, I believe she said uh, in the process uh, that the age is thirty, and uh, with the male is actually of an older age, slightly older age, uh, and uh, two children. Uh, no closer together. Uh, I forgot the exact number, but the reason why she mentioned that the the uh, the lack of closeness uh, is because each child has the right to have some uh, lap time, uh, meaning uh, und un undivided attention for each child. Uh, she was very scientific about uh, the whole process. 
and I've heard her stated it many times, and I think it was more gravitated towards, I, I'm repeating myself, towards uh, quality, uh, to whereas uh, it would, it, the theory would, would be for they would advance us more at a faster pace to uh, develop this understanding of counter-racist uh, codification and uh and uh i i still i still agree with her in in that in that in that concept uh that's all i have to say for right now i i would like i would like to try to answer that as well um just because you wait later on in life to have children does not mean that the the number of children you're going to go the number of children that are going to be born is going to decrease i know several um um um, black couples non-white couples that have children that are, they had children after 30 and they have as many children and they have, you know, two, three children, the same as some of the younger couples. So just because, you know, if, 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 if black people did follow what Dr. Francis Cressorson said, that doesn't mean that the numbers will lessen. So that's, that's not the logic doesn't, you know, you know, or, you know, black women are pretty fertile. So essentially, you know, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's the logic tells you that, it doesn't. That doesn't necessarily have to be the case. That the numbers would be left just because you wait later on in life. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, I'm. I've been made aware, abundantly aware, um, by females of multiple ethnicities that uh, it is the case that if both men and women wait longer to have children, the risk of birth defects increases um, tremendously. I think that um, the suggestion that uh, black people wait until their 30s to have children, I think is more rooted in um, drawing a contrast to the patterns that we have been forced into the patterns of childbirthing that we've been uh, forced into by this system of white supremacy. So um, I don't think that 30, waiting till 35 is necessary to begin having children is, uh, um, is a, a, a practical uh, solution. Um, I think that uh, it was predicated on if she had a magic wand um, so I think that this solution is predicated on magic, so it shouldn't be considered, um, instruction that should be taken literally. Um, I think that if you're serious about having children, you should be planning on that, uh, from a younger age, from your early twenties, and you should maybe even in your uh, in your teenage years, you should plan that out. I think we should start teaching children again how to keep a home and how to maintain their uh, own existence um, before that we should um, begin teaching about uh, child rearing or aspiring to be a parent. I think that should be the a goal, and I think that that was the spirit of the suggestion that was offered by uh, Dr. Francis Crush Wilson. And, and uh, we'll leave it I'm there. I just want to make sure we didn't miss anybody. Yeah. Um, 
are there any uh, any callers that we have missed completely? We did not get an opportunity to share at all. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Uh, thanks. Uh, thank you very much, sir. Um, greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, I, I've been meaning to ask you, Gus, about this term that's being used about uh, the lesser of two evils. Have you have you uh, spoken on that? on your program about that term that was being used i haven't spoken about it uh specifically it's a term i don't i don't really use that term very often but i have heard it and particularly within the context of the last uh election i heard it regularly yeah because i've been trying to figure out what like is anybody um put forth the definition of some kind of way of explaining it but i just keep hearing it in uh in repetition and I seen a couple of segments this week on I think it was CNN where I think it was Donald Trump's uh, I think that was his campaign manager, the Kelly and something I can't remember what her name was, but she was in a like I guess like an argument with some of the uh, Hillary Clinton aides I think that's the words they were using, and like they was they was using the term uh, white uh, white supremacy and white nationalism but it's like see i think when victims hear that they'll say you know right on they're using the term white supremacy but they seem to be using it still um in a very limited way to make people think that it's only being directed towards people who are uh republicans or people who just have some kind of flag you know and i think it's still promoting a lot of um uh, confusion, basically, and and that made me think about that audio segment where Donald Trump, I guess he was being interviewed about the the uh, recent events after the election about non-white people being aggressively attacked. He was just saying, like, I think he said he didn't know. Like, I, I think he's being uh, greatly dishonest. I think he does know, but. You know, I think that's just his codified response. You know, somebody just telling them, just tell them you didn't know. You know, I mean, who's gonna who's gonna say you did know? You're Donald Trump, so he can just say I don't know, and that's about it, and say just stop it. Like, no, they're not gonna, <laughs> they're not gonna stop it. They they're gonna keep going. So, um, yeah, and, uh, that segment with the about the tattoos, I found that very interesting. Because that remind me of a, a conversation where uh, the the white guy, the job, he was talking about um, like tattoos and like people being branded, and he mentioned about the the, uh, the fraternities who like to put the, the uh, that uh, brand on their arm, and he was saying you know how people just uh, um, follow other people and they don't lead themselves, and then I said well maybe it's something that happened back in history that they've been conditioned by and, you know <laughs> you start talking to me there you know he, he turned back and looked at the screen so yeah uh what what you just said about when uh non-white people or black people have some kind of way of uh revealing truth or strengthening their uh their information about this particular topic yeah that that's definitely something that's going to uh make uh racists feel very threatened that they have to 
keep throwing out confusion and uh, misinformation. And uh, that's that's all I have for now. Thank you. Appreciate that. Wow. Definitely. Uh, they, <laughs> I've seen that as well. You start asking questions, following logic, racists will lose interest uh, in wanting to chalk. Like, or you can just be quiet. Just go back to uh, go back to doing our work. Um, are there any callers? Uh, I was going to check in. Uh, call. I don't know if you gave out your name or not. Our female caller in Colorado. Did you give a name or did you remain anonymous when you shared on the program before? I believe I'm anonymous. All righty, right on. Did the the responses that you heard did that uh, did they make sense? Did they uh, help you get a better understanding? They they do. Um, are what are your feelings about that, guys? Do you think that that is the proper uh, way to interpret what she was saying? I think the spirit of her message in terms of really emphasizing uh, just the astronomical responsibility of creating a black life, I think that really gets to the heart of the emphasis that she was trying to make. I think when she made that statement and and talking about it so often, I think she saw the damage as a uh, medical physician, as a general and child psychiatrist. I think she saw the damage of black, the lack of value for black children and not being adequately cared for. I think she saw that uh, through her years of expertise. And so I think just really placing a high value, a high, high importance on black parenting, black children, uh, and just looking at that as a, as a tremendous honor and duty. And then also, uh, I think throwaway children, that's something that she emphasized. When we had her on the program five years ago, uh, Thanksgiving Day 2011, that was a big thing that she talked about because Jerry Sandusky was a big to-do at that time. He had just been uh, arrested. Uh, and there were some other uh, issues, scandals around sexual abuse of children. It's always an issue with non-white children, but that was something that she kept uh, stressing. She kept emphasizing just having these children, you're just making it easy. Just non-white people being ra- – and we get trained to be reckless about sex. It's in the movies and television and everything. We get groomed to be reckless about sex. And then whites exploit us. I think the way she used to say it, when you play around with sex, the joke is on the offspring. So that's what I'm saying. I really – I think that was the spirit of what it was about to really emphasize the importance, the value of creating a black life. Uh, to really stress that and to really make sure that you can adequately care for that child. Uh, And I think her seeing that that was not happening and on a grand scale that was not happening and the massive problems that uh, occur from that. White people, I guess to make it really specific, white people, it's been shown, whites benefit either way. I think that was one of the major points from uh, Harriet Washington's. Uh, medical apartheid was that during slavery it was white people benefiting by we're going to rape these black females and make them have as many children as possible until their their wombs burst making more slaves for us and then once that period of white supremacy enslavement of black people was over and then it went the other direction we're going to keep these niggers from having any children we're going to sterilize them and come up with all kinds of contraptions uh, that the system has shown they can do it either way i think she just emphasizes that we should try to have as much black self-respect and control about that process and the care of black children as possible i think that's at least my view i think what she would try to emphasize if that makes sense absolutely thank you for sure for sure Uh, I was going to ask a black uh, mother that was here that had the terroristic incident at her residence. Just as did we miss anybody, anybody that didn't get a comment in at all? 
Um, can I be heard? Yes, sir. I agree with Gus. I got dropped off at some point, and I was trying to get back in, so uh, thanks for um, unleading my line. Um, I did want to uh, speak to uh, what you were just discussing in regards to Dr. Wilson. Um, I, I definitely agree with both you and the firefighter in Florida that it really does have to do with uh, quality of the parent that is um, uh, giving birth to and raising uh, black children. Um, also, it just, to me, it harkens back to um, our culture, essentially. Um, when you study uh, Nile Valley African history specifically, um, you'll find that children entered the school system at the age of seven and did not graduate until 47. So you got 40 years of schooling, um, multi multidisciplinary training. So you would be uh, a master at multiple disciplines. Um, um, that's something that is noted throughout history. And um, beyond that, uh, essentially, it gives you just a greater foundation as a, as a, a black adult. Um, and I put that in quotes. Um, also, it also made me think of something that I heard Scotty Reed talk about because he had talked about, uh, this was last week on the program, that uh, he, he said he studied statistics and that he had found that since Planned Parenthood was created, over 53 million black babies have been aborted, which is actually more than the total number of black people in this country, according to what white people say the numbers are of black people. I don't agree with them. I think there's a lot more of us than they're saying. Um, but also he said that when he was doing statistics on the number of children being born, that black people's numbers have not been going down, that, that he said they actually have been going up. So even though there's massive amounts of black children dying, we're not dying to the point where we have a negative birth rate. Um, so essentially, he, and he actually said, I don't know if I can call it genocide, simply because genocide means to remove numbers to the point where you're not procreating or there's a negative birth rate with the intent of wiping everyone out. And he said that's not what he's been seeing with his research. So um, essentially, the quality of black parents would be more important to me. And once I heard Scotty Lee discuss the fact that, you know, our numbers are not diminishing, then it's actually her idea is brilliant, simply because it just gives us more of a fighting chance as far as being able to help our children survive the system and grow to an age in which they can be quality parents themselves. Also, I wanted to we'll, uh, my we'll uh, leave it there because I did want to make oh, time to ask sure. the uh, parent. No apologies. Uh, no apologies needed. That definition of genocide is important too, and also comes up explicitly in medical apartheid. Harriet Washington. Lovely privilege to uh, read that with the cows listeners. You can go back and check it in the archives. The black mother, I keep saying it. Are you still with us? The black mother that was terrorized last week that dialed in. Are you still with us, ma'am? Yes, I'm here. Awesome. Uh, when you wrote in last week, unless my memory is failing, um, you said that one of the lessons in this case was um, sobriety would be best. Was was sobriety, was that an issue in any way with the incident that happened where this race soldier came and terrorized you at it your residence? Wasn't. Oh, okay, okay. I don't, I, I certainly wasn't drinking anything, um, but, you know, I'd had guests over and it's holiday, you know, events, so there was, there was, um, you know, wine, but I hadn't drank anything. Um, and, you know, if he hadn't done what he'd done, I probably would not have had to call the police um, because that's not something I've ever had to do in my life. Um, and given what been happening of late I'm always you know on my guard pursuing that in the first place so that that's where that came from as well as the, the documentation note that I had made just because this was something that had seemed to 
presented itself as something that was going to be an issue, we had started kind of like writing things down. I was almost going to give the uh, metaphor, but I mean, that is, if you look at the codified, counter-racist codified definition uh, that Mr. Fuller has, that, just hearing the logic from this black parent, uh, music to my ears, um, documentation, very, very helpful in many different settings. And I think we both agree uh, sobriety certainly was best for this situation. I, I think we would agree. I don't think you being under the influence or anyone in your residence, uh, I don't think anybody being under, under the influence of any substance would have made that situation any better. Do we have agreement there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right on, right on. Do you uh, have any uh, regrets about calling the enforcement officials? I know some people, and you yourself expressed, you know, some hesitancy about having to involve them. Do you do you think that was the right decision with hindsight? No, I, I, I definitely think it was the right decision. Mm. Um, my family um, agreed also because that goes to the whole being fearful of, you know, what would happen and what this person is going to do. Um, and the fact that, you know, outside of him ringing the bell, we haven't had any interactions with him, you know. So, no, I, I don't regret that decision. I think it was the right thing to do. Right on, right on. This is uh, unfortunate, but I think it's very important. I know I, you know, said this before. I think just having, like, emergency plans, uh, it is very, very important. Uh, if you have children, you can do it as a household. Uh, you can just go over different scenarios. You know, if something should happen at school, kind of how you would want them to respond. Like, you have a code. You don't have to use that term, but, I mean, that's what we're talking about, essentially having a code. This is how I want you to respond if an emergency should happen at school. This is what I want you to do, you know, if an emergency should happen at the residence. Like, just kind of go over some, you know, different types of scenarios, whatever type of way they get to school, if they walk, if they catch the bus, if they get a ride, whatever it is. Just kind of go over some different scenarios. If something should happen with a teacher, if something should happen with another student, uh, that just... In my experience, anything that you practice, so I say whites, practice racism. The practice, just practice, is the art of refinement. We have some people that participate. If you've done anything competitive, we have musicians. You practice, you get better. You are refining your skills. You can practice counter-racism by just talking about these issues honestly, logically, uh, with ourselves, with other people we care about, with your children. And then you can give an opportunity where you can actually speak or walk through kind of what you want to do, right? So if it's a situation like with this home scenario, what have you, uh, you can, you know, kind of go through uh, and just act up. This is what I want you to do. You know, if, I, if you are instructing your children to not, you know, don't go close to the door, call me or go here or wherever you want them to go in the residence, whatever you want them to do, walk through that so that it's not... Uh, anything that they're doing for the first time, they already have some familiarity with this. They've practiced it. They have some muscle memory, as they say. Great idea. The same way that you practice with anything else, practice your counter-racist codification, and particularly with your children, so that they'll already know what to do. It'll be There'll be some comfort uh, around engaging in these activities, which might end up saving their life. Um, well, I just... I. I am sorry that, you know, this is the context of you, you know, dialing in 
uh, to share, but I just, I think it's so important because I mean, this is pride. This is why I play those incidents on a weekly basis because there are tons of incidents just like this that happen all the time. And you're just probably not going to have a whole lot of people. It's just probably going to be you and your immediate, you know, family members or what have you, and just figuring out what to do, uh, the best way to try to handle these, uh, situations. Uh, certainly if you, want to write me or if you want to dial in directly uh, i'm sure folks would uh, appreciate it and, and would also uh, continue to uh, encourage and support you and uh your your children your family as you all are, are going through this and uh, i hope the time and energy i cannot stress that enough uh, having to disrupt your work schedule and everything that's just another aspect of racism white supremacy non-mighty wick and some of our other guests have talked about that how they compromise our time uh, and just will, you know, go on the court procedures and they can delay and oh, we have a continuance and that sort of thing where it's just it, you are the victim and you're being continually penalized. You're being re-victimized uh, by the way that they use your time and energy uh, and trying to get uh, the issue resolved. But if you're able to to, uh, to continue to share, that would be great. Or if you want to write in, uh, I definitely uh, hope that you all are able to remain safe and uh, do as much as you can to uh, nourish your mental health. Thank you. Thank you very much. For sure. Uh, we did our three. Uh, I will check in with Raj. You said you wanted to, you had a comment you wanted to get in about the uh, Keith Lamont Scott case, sir. Uh, yes. Yeah. Can it be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Thank you so much. Yes. Um, what it was was that um, I remember not too long, maybe about two or three weeks after the incident had taken place with Mr. Scott, that I had seen an interview on the news with two people. One was a white neighbor and the other one was a black neighbor. And both of them saw the incident from the very beginning. And they said that he sat in his car, he was reading a book. They said they did, that he did this regularly. Um, and he, they knew him. They, they would speak to him, say hi, whatever, and he would say hi, but he would read his book until his children came out. They said when he got out the car, the book that he was reading, uh, fell off of his lap because he had his hands up when the police approached the vehicle. So as a result, he put the book in his lap. He had his hands up. When they asked him to get out the car, as a result, the book fell on the floor. So that was the object that originally fell. The white woman said the person who she saw shoot him was a white officer. The black female uh, eyewitness also said the person that she saw shoot him was a white officer and that afterwards um the, the gun that that they both said he never had they said it was not a gun it was a book and they said that um after he was shot magically it became this black officer that did the shooting when they actually eyewitness saw that it was a white officer who shot and killed him so everything that that, that the uh law enforcement uh agencies are saying about what's happened is completely opposite to what these two witnesses saw and i found it interesting that the white female told basically told what she saw and it matched what the black females saw rather than her practicing racism and saying something totally different so i just find that very telling that they're that they're trying to obfuscate to take that word that you use so well um obfuscate the reality of the fact that he was murdered by a white officer and that i believe there's a major cover-up and i'm hoping that it gets exposed going down the line but i just wanted to put that out there i don't know how many other people might have seen or heard about that in regards to the two eyewitnesses who completely refute everything that's being told publicly on the news today i thank you and i'll meet my line for sure for sure the uh mecklenburg district attorney andrew murray uh, this is the white male in the Keith Lamont Scott case. He gave a very lengthy press conference 
And I think he addressed most of those issues in the press conference, which uh, even in the sound clip that I played, uh, some of the journalists noted that that seemed to be a deviation from the general pattern when they have, you know, some sort of uh, a shooting or there's going to be an announcement about an indictment. It's generally not as comprehensive uh, as what the district attorney offered in this case. And he said that some of these witnesses who made those statements that, you know, it was not this black officer who did the shooting, uh, that uh, some of these witnesses lied, uh, that they later said that they did not see the actual uh, shooting. Uh, he presented, uh, <laughs> you have to listen to uh, his press conference. It's available online. You can listen to it, but he presents, he gives buckets and buckets of words, in my opinion, uh, about the gun evidence to support that the notion that there was a gun uh, and uh, he even takes time to specifically admonish uh, the use of social media and propagating falsehoods in this case, uh, like everything that uh, Roz just mentioned. And I had such a big smile because it was exactly what I was saying for Nosedive uh, to go back to Black Mirror. Uh, where the premise of that episode is this white woman, her life falls apart because of social media. And I said that I thought that episode was representing uh, some of white angst about the way that uh, black people over the last, I would say, five years or so have been using social media uh, to uh, for counter racist purposes. Basically, uh, I thought it was an, another exact example of that because he took that was a specific chunk of his commentary and he got very huffy um, with uh, reckless Negro use of social media. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing, but that was about my interpretation of. Uh, his remarks in propagating these false notions that, you know, this black officer didn't do the shooting, that somebody else did it, or that he didn't have a gun, he had a book, or, you know, the other uh, urban legends, quote-unquote, uh, as they will be labeled around this case. But it, you can check that out with his uh, press conference, and I'll just state, again, this is to be expected in the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, let us do everything we can to try to minimize the likelihood of it being you, one of those things being sobriety i don't think uh we are we did our three hours so if you didn't get your opportunity to share uh you have missed out for today uh but sobriety would be best under conditions of racism white supremacy uh i do not think any of us here can truthfully say uh if we were confronted in real life with daniel holtzclaw darren wilson i don't think any of us can truthfully say that you know if i had a bottle of wine uh, or a few shots, a couple of bottles of champagne, a uh, little cannabis. I don't think any of us could truthfully say that we would do a better job uh, of handling that situation and coming out unscathed, unharmed, able to go on with our lives. Uh, just being truthful. War is being waged against us. We really should make every effort to make sure that our behavior at all times uh, reflects that war is being waged against us and we are aware and doing everything we can to neutralize that fact. Sobriety would be best. And that goes if you're going to be in a vehicle, whether you're a driver, passenger, even a pedestrian. There was a teenager. I didn't even get that in. There was a teenager right here in Washington State in uh, Wallingford. Uh, he was walking and it ended up being same type of thing. Joe McKnight and it ended up being uh, what they call a road rage incident uh, with some white person in a vehicle and uh, it ended up being a physical altercation uh, between the two and enforcement officials were called and they ended up taking the black teen pedestrian 
uh, into custody. Uh, and, that, and the same thing, they were upset because this became a big to-do on social media, them tweeting about it. I posted it on Facebook myself. Uh, but, yeah, I don't think, even in that situation as well, I don't think this teenage black person, they got legal cannabis out here, I don't think him having a blunt is going to improve his odds in that situation working out in his favor. That said, creator, uh, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.